something, but you have to hold on to your belief in life that it's not going to be dark like this with that door closed for the rest of my life. If another door doesn't open, let's let that window crack. And you can see the light. That's, that's how it's been for me. I've been shut down, run down, talked about, dogged out, but that never stopped me from being the true me that's here and will be here. I can never not be happy about my life. All the things that I've been in and out of and through, I'm so strong now, Oprah.
Good morning, everyone. Happy Wednesday. It's the middle of the work week. It's also hashtag WCW Woman Crush Wednesday. Or as I like to say, we celebrate women today. Today we're celebrating the beautiful Patti LaBelle. And we're doing so through music. your days off to a good start so far
wherever you are in the world, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for choosing to listen. Gotta say good morning to all of our listeners logged on to the Quality Music Zone, QMZRadio.com. And of course, a big thank you to everyone listening on JohnnoRadio.com and my studio audience, courtesy of Clubhouse. Keep it locked. We're going to get started real soon. I'm going to pull this one back up from the top. You are my friend. Patricia Louise Holt, known professionally as Patti LaBelle, is an American R&B singer, songwriter, actress, and businesswoman. LaBelle is referred to as the godmother of soul. 
She began her career in the early 1960s as lead singer and front woman of the vocal group Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells. to take you all to church this morning. Thank you, Patti LaBelle, for that one. You are my friend. It's time for us to go ahead and get started. One cup of coffee, then I'll go. One cup of coffee, then I'll go. Morning to all our listeners around the world, logged on to the Quality Music Zone, QMZRadio.com and JanoRadio.com. Good morning to my studio audience, courtesy of Clubhouse. It is Wednesday, March the 1st, the start of a new month. What are your plans for this month? It's chapter 3 in 2023. Today is hashtag WCW, we celebrate women. And today we are celebrating Patti LaBelle through music. Thank you so much for joining me for Coffee Intel World News on the Go. We do this every Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern. This is where I read the news and we share our views. Remember, you can follow me on TikTok, Moments with Me Media, on Instagram, Moments underscore with underscore me underscore media, and on Twitter, Me Media Moments. And here are the headlines we have coming up for you today. Out of the Caribbean corner, African royals to visit the Caribbean to discuss impacts of slavery, and I hope they're going to talk about their role in it too. But anyway, that's a conversation nobody wants to have. American leaders upbeat about conference in Jamaica. Where is the serious plan for interregional travel and tourism? Digicel eSIM is now available in Grenada. There's a high demand for Guyana products in Barbados. And out of Haiti, the Director General of the Ministry of Sport has been kidnapped. Trinidad and Tobago got its first low exhaust tug. Uh, tourism industry must protect the marine environment, and that's according to Bartlett, and that's out of Jamaica. Uh, Chang encourages JCF members to keep pace with technological advancements. We have those stories and more out of the Caribbean corner in Latin America. 
dozens of forest fires scorch Cuba, threatening brittle economy, and Puerto Rico to close the lone zoo after years of complaints. On the international scene, a fiery Greece train collision kills dozens and injures more than 80. Nigeria, Africa's most populous nation, elects Bola Tinubu as the new president. Also out of Nigeria, the opposition party is calling the election a sham and demand a new vote. Congress zeroes in on China as economic and security threats loom. In news out of North America, queer baiting, trauma dumping, pink washing. What are those? FBI says man had guns, ammo, fake martial ID in baggage. Pandemic food assistance that held back hunger comes to an end. More states appear poised to expand voting access for people who were incarcerated. A man charged with killing three officers was found dead in his jail cell. And conservative and liberals split at Supreme Court over Biden's student loan plan. In business and tech news, Mexico approves new Tesla plant in northern Mexico. And the U.S. government is saying to chip makers, uh, if you want subsidies, you better be willing to share your profits. In health and science news, LGBTQ plus youth are less likely to feel depressed with parental support. And three abortion bans in Texas leave doctors talking in code to pregnant patients. We have our lifestyle segment. We have sports news. And the Believe It or Not segment. Um, <laughs> we spoke about this yesterday on the Rose Solo Show. But a Chicago armed robber found at scene eating victims fried chicken. And also in the brew, Nick Cannon says, God, not you all, will decide how many children he will have. What he's saying, folks, is drink water and mind your own damn business. We're going to be right back with the details of these stories and more after a little more from Patty LaBelle. Don't you ever forget someone loves you. Somebody loves you, folks. Woo! <laughs> 
Tender age of 10, Patti LaBelle joined her local church choir at the Beulah Baptist Church and performed her first solo two years later. While she was growing up, she listened to secular music styles such as R&B and jazz music, and you can hear it in her songs. Thank you so much to everyone listening online. If you have somewhere to be at the bottom of the hour, you have five minutes to get there. Please be safe. Here she is singing when you've been blessed. Today's WCW selection is courtesy of Rosolo. In a world.
gonna squeeze in one more from Patti LaBelle, Kiss Away the Bane. And then we're gonna go ahead and get started at the bottom of the hour. Keep it locked. I say you're at fault. You say I'm selfish. Now the accusations must be paid with a Half past the top of the hour, it's time for us to go ahead and get started. And we're kicking it off in the Caribbean corner. A big thank you once again to everyone listening online, QMZRadio.com and JohnNoRadio.com. And of course, I got to give a big thank you to my studio audience, courtesy of Clubhouse. Our first story out of the Caribbean corner, African royals to visit the Caribbean to discuss impacts of slavery. Story courtesy of Caribbean.loopnews.com. A 15-member royal delegation from Africa will visit Jamaica this week to hold discussions about how the transatlantic slave trade affected the continent. Sir Hilary Beckles, vice-chancellor of the University of the West Indies, revealed this as he gave remarks at yesterday's reparations forum in Grenada where the descendants of Sir John Trevelyan and his wife Louisa Simon apologized for their ancestors' role in the slave trade. Beckles said the arrival of the seven kings and eight queens would continue discussions that started with the family's apology. Among the topics to be discussed will include how African monarchs played a role in selling their fellow Africans to colonizers to work as slaves on plantations across the Americans and the Caribbean. Beckles noted the slave trade ravaged many of the African monarchies that prospered for centuries before colonialism. Hmm. Didn't I ask, was it last week I said 
um, we're not ready for this conversation. We try to avoid the conversation um, as it relates to the role that Africans played in slavery. Well, I'm glad that they're ready to have, that they're going to have the conversation. So maybe it will force more of us to accept that we also had a hand in it. Many African kingdoms were made wealthy off of the slave trade. And let's not pretend it didn't happen. If we're going to talk about truth, let's talk about the truth about everything. That's me. That's my personal opinion. So I want to hear how that conversation is going to go. Um, I know that there is another article that I have later on, but I might as well go ahead and just um, get it out of the way since I'm trying to find it back. <laughs> yeah, so here it is. The African leaders are upbeat about the conference in Jamaica, courtesy of JamaicaObserver.com. Dr. Robinson Tani described his arrival in Jamaica as he and three other African leaders strolled through the Norman Manley International Airport in Kingston on Tuesday as they were greeted with the playing of drums. He said, I just feel like I am home. The four, Tani, Ambassador Ireno, Queen Cynthia, and Princess Dr. Bam, will be among high-profile Profile, sorry, participants at a one-day symposium on Thursday at the University of the West Indies Mona campus being held under the theme Reparation and Royalty, Africa and Europe, Exploding Myths and Empowering Truths. While the drums played, the African leaders who were dressed in dashiki maintained a cheerful spirits as they danced to the upbeat rhythm which captured the attention of many onlookers who um, their phones they had out to capture the moment. Tani, who is the king of Tino Bu Cameroon and president of the African Indigenous Governance Council, was delighted to share his expectations for the symposium. He said, this country is close to my birthplace. The people I see around just warm my heart. I just feel like I am home. I'm very happy to be here. This is Bob Marley's country. That is the figure we know, he told the Jamaica Observer. We have come to assure the Jamaicans that they are Africans. We are Africans. There is nothing different between you and me, and we just wish the differences that have kept us away would finally find a place to rest, and we continue as brothers and sisters. Yeah. And again, I'll ask the question, why have we've been so hesitant to address this part of the conversation. They must have heard me. The ancestors must have heard me and took the conversation to them. Go ahead, Javette. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Good morning, all. Good morning, Javette. I don't necessarily feel that we have been hesitant mm -hmm. in our part I think one reason because the history has been hidden let's say mm -hmm. we've only been able to know the part that the others played in it so now that we're able to 
learn our history and take a deep dive in the slave trade, the slave market, and times prior to us being here, mm -hmm. now we're able to have the conversation. Okay. And what I want to ask is, how do we feel about it now that we, we are made aware of it? How do we feel? For me, I... So I've known, I've had this knowledge, and they even showed it back when they showed that first slave movie. Uh, can't remember the name. I don't know if it, I don't remember what the movie was. I know it was Roots was one, mm -hmm. and then Shaka Zulu. Shaka yes. Zulu, yeah. They yes. really showed it. They showed it in Shaka Zulu as well. Mm -hmm. I have to say, honestly, I think it was ignorance. It was ignorance. It was having the words of somebody in your ear making you feel stronger than you are with something that you don't know when you're not aware of something and people bring it to you and make you feel like you're above the rest of everyone else. Mm -hmm. You may fall for it. Mm -hmm. what is that saying about if you don't know you'll fall for anything or yeah. something like that yeah, if, yeah. <laughs> yeah if you don't stand for something you'll fall for anything if you don't stand for something Great. hold on a second chief yeah go ahead javette oh no chief can go because i know he's been waiting to speak <laughs> okay so right before you go chief right before you go i remember watching shaka zula and i want to say that came out in the 80s and ever since then, I've been asking the question. So that was what, 30, 40 years ago? Okay, go ahead, Chief. Good morning, good morning. Chief, where are you? Good, good morning, how are you all? I am well, thank you. Happy to hear it. Um, yeah, the, the conversation has gone on for a while. Uh, and I've been, a, I've been a part of a few of those conversations, even on the continent. Mm -hmm. And um, I, the, the thing is, you have to, because what predates this conversation are European countries, like even Britain have has had like these comings out of apologies back in the early 2000s about their role in the Catholic Church and their role. And the, the, the thing that surprised me the most was the level of ignorance, even today, when that, when we have this conversation. The, le the level of ignorance is par is just profound. And I say that because we, we tend to, number one, forget the size of the continent and the size of even West Africa and the size of the countries in West Africa. It would be almost, as, it's the same as saying that moments you're responsible for the crimes that exist in your city, right? And, and you have a percentage of us who participate in those crimes and you get broad brushed to the point that nobody talks about the people who are resisting the, that, that process, those roles, those mechanisms. Like uh, let's just use Nigeria as an example, since I'm familiar, like the slave port coast, the slave port uh, in Badagri. Nobody knows that the, the, the leading chief of that slave port had already been, Take, kidnapped and taken to Britain 
and he was indoctrinated completely uh, for both culturally and religiously. And he took the same Western ideology back to Africa and created a market for that purpose, for that very thing to exist. His last name is Williams. And I was like, how do you get a name Williams in that time period? I had no idea he had been kidnapped and taken. Missionaries were in Africa almost a whole century before the slave trade. But even before that, the Arabs were already invading our region and in, enslaving us long before the European got there. And so this idea of slavery, and for somebody to say Africans participated in slavery, I think we need to be very specific when we have that conversation because what they didn't participate in is chattel slavery because the idea the concept was very different. You know, so in fact, you just like you saw in Woman King, if you saw it, you saw where people who, those women were former slaves. And it just showed you that even a slave could rise to prominence in African traditional culture. That is a significant difference from the kind of slavery we're talking about. And to allow other people, the others to, um, to define what slavery looked like and what slavery was to us and to not have a discussion about how it comes about, like what was happening during that time period, rampant wars, wars that were not necessarily uh, created by our own, but instigated by outside forces who wanted access to product. So like in my hometown, Abilkuta, we didn't even use guns in war until the Agoji attacks from, from the Dahomey. And the Christian missionaries didn't come in with Bibles. They came in with rifles and said, listen, you're going to have to arm yourself. Well, what was their advantage, right? What was their, what was their motive, incentive? They had incentive, which is too much to go into right now. But I think we need to, re I, I'm, I'm grateful the conversation is happening. And I'm grateful that there's a sense of accountability from, uh, from these countries. I just, I just know that it is very important that we don't let anybody else define the conversation or what it looks like. Otherwise, we find ourselves doing the same thing we do to our, to each other here in this country, which is we blame ourselves for, for the condition of our own community without mutual accountability, right? We do have to have self-accountability, but you also need to be aware of why these circumstances exist and why it is so difficult to get beyond it, right? Africa, we got to remember that same country that enslaved people were taken from was also colonized. You don't colonize a country without really damaging it and, and doing some serious mind control that allows a, a, an outside force to, to colonize a nation. You know, and so it's a, I, I would love to be part of that conversation because there's a lot to it. I would love to hear so what I they have here. to say. Thank you, Chief. I would really love to hear what they have to say. Um, because the truth is, for me, my personal truth is that we are told by all different sector, sectors what we, they want us to understand. Will we ever know the truth, truth, truth? Because there are three sides to every story. His side, her side, and the truth. And everybody's going to present their side to be most favorable. So for those of you who are wondering, what is the difference between slavery and chattel slavery? In the course of human history, slavery was a typical feature of civilization and was legal in most societies. But it is now outlawed in most countries of the world, except as a punishment for a crime. 
Chattel slavery is the most common form of slavery known to Americans. This system, which allowed people, considered legal property, to be bought, sold, and owned forever. This lawful and this was lawful and supported by the United States and European powers from the 16th to 18th centuries. And I'm going to read some comments from the chat. Uh, Gili said, the only true monarchy left in Africa is in the kingdom of Eswatini. Which countries, which countries are the kings and queens coming from? Good question, and I hope we can have a detailed answer of that. Uh, Dre says, we shouldn't feel any way about it. This was all tribal war. Uh, those people sold into slavery were enemies, and that's the reality. The kingdom of Benin, Togo, was part of Nigeria. And here is where I'm going to... Um, kind of rebut on the part that we shouldn't feel anyway how would you feel if you were um captured so tribal war you're captured you'll no longer see your mother your father your family your your tribe and then you're put on a boat you're sold and put on a boat how would you feel right um all split because of tribal war to them it didn't look like they were selling their own all right and of course, there's an appreciation for Chief explaining it from his perspective. I think someone else had opened their mic. You want to go right ahead? Not sure. Ooh. But moments. Hey, yeah, Javet. So you said there's three sides to every story. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can ever know the truth because we're piecing together knowledge or history from two sides so the truth is going to become the truth whoever pieces those pieces together Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i know know, i'm sorry go ahead no i i can say i know i'm gonna feel some type of way because at that time like chief said um they were colonized you know so we were we were taken out of our normal practices and shown something different that we thought was going to be better through ignorance that's where i'm at on that all right fair enough thank you so much uh one more comment and then we got to keep it moving go ahead i think chief you're going to say something go right ahead yeah i was just going to say napoleon bonaparte said one thing about truth and the history. He said, history is a set of lies agreed upon. <laughs> so when the when the hunter controls the message, the lion will never be able to tell the story. <laughs> so we don't we haven't been we're, we're look at look at us now. We're fighting just to get our own history told in schools. Imagine being in a whole country where your history is never told accurately or told from your own perspective. Like we do have our own truth. We just haven't had the opportunity to tell our own story. That's why I'm really, I would really love to be a part of, or just even listen to the conversation because I know the world is getting ready to get a real awakening mm-hmm. about how these things happened and who who the entities are that are responsible. So like in Niger- Nigeria, if you took out, if you said how many people actually participate in slave trade in the whole population of Nigeria? And if you say 2%, but then, but but the story says that these people sold their own people. You actually discount 
every slave revolt, every anti-slavery uh, 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 mechanism, like Queen Nzinga that's on Netflix now, good example. People don't know about any of those stories. Like my family hails from Abiokuta, Olomorak. It's a resistance city. It's a resistance town that fought against the, the idea, the concepts of enslavement. And even in our own lineage, they say that we, we found ways to, to, purchase their, to purchase people back after they discovered the type of enslavement and the way these people were being treated. Because even people who were identified as slaves, and I say that, I really hate to use the word only because we're being dictated by somebody else's language to define a system that is not the same. So we're using words that don't even fit the description. Like you still kept your language. You still stayed, were able to stay close to your family. You st none of your traditions were lost in the, in the idea. When I, I remember being in Africa in 1996, no, it was 98. And I met this man working at a, a hotel on a college campus. And he said, tomorrow's my last day of slavery. Now imagine it messed me up because I'm thinking, wait, what are you talking about? I mean, like modern day slavery? He said, no, I'm, I, the, so my child goes to school here. So I work, the, I work the lands. I do all the landscaping for free. Well, tomorrow's my last day. They threw a big party for him, but he used the word slavery. So it's, it's going to be a big, a big um, eye opener for a lot of us. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you, Chief. Thank you, everyone, for your comments. And I will close by saying this and move on to the next story. Uh, Dre said in the chat, the Africans know the truth. All right. Next up, uh, so we're going to see if we can find out which countries they're from. I know we there is someone there from Cameroon. Uh, let me see. Let me see if I can scan through and find out, see what I can get from here. So you have Tanyi, who is the king of the Tino Mbu or Bu tribe um, out of Cameroon. Uh, you have, da, 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 let me see, Bam. Okay, it doesn't say where Bam is from. Uh, you have Zilikazi out of South Africa, a queen. Going down so far, those are the two that have been identified specifically. All right, so we're going to wait to hear uh, a complete list of where they're from. Hopefully we can have that by tomorrow. All right. Okay, next up. Where is the serious plan for interregional travel and tourism? This seems to be an ongoing conversation. Well, we've had it here several times over the past couple of weeks. Well, this story is courtesy of Barbados.loopnews.com. The Barbados Labour Party government is being urged to seriously focus its attention on interregional travel and Barbados's tourism. Speaking on interregional travel, former Minister of Tourism and International Transport Richard Seeley told Loop News in an interview, we have a real problem in that regard. We were very quick to kiss Liat goodbye, and we thought that all these different regional players would be tripping over each other to come and take over the routes. It has not occurred. And in places where they have taken over, the prices have been astronomically high. Uh, I think that while I salute the entrepreneurism, the CEO of Inter-Caribbean, Gardener out of Turks and Caicos, 
He has been trying to get into Barbados for a very long time. And I think that his approach of incrementality, increasing his network, and of course, now he's getting a larger aircraft, even that, that makes sense. We still have a mishmash. We still have very important routes that are underserviced. And in essence, what we need to do is sit down and develop a serious plan. Critiquing the government's plan for the sector over the past four to five years, he gave them a failing grade. Seeley said he read the recent reports that they, the government, are saying they want to be part of a logistics hub. Chris Sinclair, former finance minister under the Democratic Labour Party, had that in his budget in 2011 or 2012. That is nothing new. And if you felt so strongly about, question is, why would it take you five years to announce it? Looking at the huge hole left behind by Liat and the talks of new ferry systems between other islands, with nothing on the cards in concrete for Barbados to ease travel across the region, he urged. We haven't really heard anything sincere from the government in that regard, and that is very important, not only from a tourism perspective, but indeed from a point of view for our overall economic development. We are services-based economies. We speak of diversifying away from tourism and the travel that takes place between the islands, especially the EC. That is critical for Barbados's development. So, as I said several times, they listening. We talking, so we can't stop talking. Even if it's a case of, you know, if you believe in the mantra, put it out there in the universe, it will um, unfold. It will happen. All right. Well, proof we, we're proving that more and more, right? A lot of things we talk about, a lot of concerns that we address here, and a lot of suggestions that we have presented right here. Um, yeah, they're happening. <laughs> they are happening. So, um, Donald, good morning. Did I bring you up? So... Uh, we were just talking about something we've spoken about several times. Where is the serious plan for interregional travel and tourism? And that story was courtesy of Barbados.lootnews.com. So more needs to be done. Everyone is conscious of that fact. Now we need to see how they're going to have a meeting of the minds to move forward. They did also mention a ferry system. They did also mention moving away from tourism solely. All right. So they're listening to us, Donnell. <laughs> you ought to feel proud. Yeah, yeah. Morning all. Morning. Yeah, we all like to we talk about stuff, but unless we like to have a meeting and put an implementation strategy in place put a concrete plan in place and get people committed to it. Five years from now, we'll be having the same conversation and we'll be singing nice, but that's all we'll be doing, just getting airplay. We have to have a strategy in place. If we're looking at a ferry system, the feasibility study and environmental impact studies, these things are costly. So this is something we have to do as a collective. And as you say, Liat is not no longer there. Nobody's running in to take up the market space because it's a difficult market to operate in. So why don't we just look at a total transportation system between the islands, um, make it a public good, make every government come on board to make it as efficient as possible so that it can service the region. 
Remember we was talking about reaching out um, tourism. Mm-hmm. I know the Barbados is highlighting the fact that especially the EC countries is important to the economy of Barbados. So what do you think would happen if we all can travel from Guyana to Jamaica and we have a network and a system that is reasonably priced, you understand, and is reasonably efficient? There will be delays from here to here. We don't, time to time, we don't have to get it perfect in the beginning. But it's important that we start. It's important that we have a methodology that would bring us where we want to go. Mm-hmm. Because these little band-aids, they're not working. They're not working. We need to address the situation holistically. And I think we're just looking at little thing here and little thing there. Barbados getting a carrier to do a couple more trips is not going to fundamentally impact Barbados and the region. We need something that would impact the region. And we have to look away from just tourism. We have to look away from goods and services. We have to look at f- food. The Windward Island could play a much bigger role in feeding the Caribbean, Jamaica, Guyana. These places have a lot of resources that can be utilized regionally at a cheaper cost if it is done properly, at a, a, a better product. So unless we look at that, it won't happen. All right. Thank you so much, Donald. Our next story, high demand for Guyana products in Barbados. Story courtesy of Barbados.loopnews.com. Or before I get to that one, let me jump on this one because this is a, one is out of Grenada. Digital customers in Grenada can now utilize the latest feature in telecommunication technology, the eSIM, on their mobile devices. Digicel began rolling out the technology in Grenada on February 24, 2023. An eSIM is a digital version of the physical SIM card that prepaid and postpaid customers use to connect to the Digicel network. Most eSIM-enabled smartphones also accept a physical SIM or more than one eSIM, giving customers the flexibility to add another Digicel number for work purposes or when they travel overseas. With the move to supporting eSIM technology, Digicel has given customers the reassurance that they can enjoy a full-fledged digital experience, regardless of the device they choose to use. Customers with eSIM-compatible devices can visit any Digicel retail store to make the switch. There is a growing demand for Guyana's products and services from the Barbadian population. As Barbadians flocked last weekend to AgroFest 2023 at Queen's Park, the contingent from Guyana were awed by the local response to their products. Some booths such as Guyana, I'm sorry, Guy America Furniture were sold out by midday. 42 Guyanese businesses across various sectors attended the three-day agricultural exhibition. Crafts from the indigenous communities in Region 1 and Region 9 of Guyana were also on sale. Gavin Bovell, Trade and Investment Representative for the Guyana Office for Investment, based in Barbados, told Loop News this heightened interest amplified following the signing of the St. Barnabas Accord in 2021. Guyana's President Dr. Mohamed Irfan Ali and Prime Minister Mia Amor Motley, while attending the 43 CARICOM Heads of Government Conference, signed the accord which signaled their strength 
They're strengthening relationship in agriculture and food security, manufacturing, trade, tourism, and international transport, education, and security. With the signing of the St. Barnabas Accord with Prime Minister Motley and President Ali, the St. Barnabas Accord has deepened that relationship and made it easier for the private sector to really engage with one another, which is why we're seeing some of the successes that we're seeing now with produce being able to enter the market much more easily. And that's how it ought to be. As I'm reading this, I have a question, and I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I remember back in the day (laughs) in Jamaica, the furniture was handmade. Is that the case anymore? Or because I noticed there's an Ashley furniture store in Jamaica. Is it that we're doing more import of cheap furniture to Jamaica? There's an Ashley furniture store in Jamaica? Yep. Wow. Yep. Well, I'll go on for courts. <laughs> I think we have moved out, moved away from the traditional furniture making, and we're importing this, like let's say, it's like how you have box meals, this box furnitures, <laughs> where you know the IKEAs and so where you just hook it up for yourself, and it lasts two months if you sit down properly <laughs> and stuff like that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm so sorry. I'm going to be laughing. Valid point. Okay, so a little bit about me. Just a little bit. We used to have a furniture store, and all the furniture that we sold um, back in the day was, and our furniture store went back to the early 1900s. So it was from my grandfather and then my father. We sold nothing imported. Everything was made in Jamaica. So my parents' home has been there since they've had, they were married for 49 plus years before my dad passed away. Um, so 49 and six, how much is that? Um, 49 and six, whatever. 55 years. Okay. 55 years. Now, so 50 minus two, 53 years, because it took them two years to build their house. The furniture that's in our house right now is that old. Made in Jamaica. Built-ins in in, in the study. Made in Jamaica. Every bed head made in Jamaica. The buffet in which you display your china made in jamaica every piece of furniture 50 what must i 54 years old the furniture older than me we have an antique pair of um side tables in the dining room you can't tell they're antique they look modern they're over 100 years old made in jamaica why have we moved away from that because first of all, you look at the higher purchase model and stuff like that, where somebody could go with no money down, take something from the courts and and so, and they could pay for it over time. Usually, if you go into the artisan, you have to have your money to pay. You understand, or you have people get despondent because people take their furniture and didn't pay them the, the balance and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we are not. 
pushing these niche markets. We are not pushing that self-sufficiency where we could create more inside, employ more people, and develop better artisans, and so on. We're not doing that. We're, we're on the track to a fast-forward model. You understand? And we just, everything comes in a box. We import everything, and then we complain about the import bill. <laughs> but these are the things we have to go back to. Empower the tailors, empower the... Um, the, the, the people doing the, the, the joinery and the craft and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then we would start to see the, the resurgence of our, our market. Mm -hmm. And we could use the entire Caribbean as, a, as one market, as opposed to, you know, even the same quotes and so on. You can have these artisans make the stuff and sell it to these people as opposed to the importing from outside of the region. Mm -hmm. And I, I am sure the cost would not be prohibitive. But unless we start to look at these little things, and start to put back everything together bit by bit. We are not finding solutions. We will continue to run on the treadmill and we would wonder why we're not making any progress. We have traded, we have traded um, quality for quantity because we used to offer that, um, um, Donald, where you didn't have to pay all at once. We would allow you to pay in installments. Have we been stiffed? Yes, but that did not deter us. We continued to do it. Every mattress, every dining table, there was not one piece of furniture made, whether it's for your living room, your dining room, your bedroom, your veranda. Even the um, patio sets were made in Jamaica. When we had, and, and then when we, we also had a haberdashery store where we sold material and um, shoes and everything. Um, Yes, we sold imported clothing and shoes there, but shoes, much of the shoes, made in Jamaica. Made in Jamaica. But moments, can I add something to this yeah. as well? Mm -hmm. The people that had these skill sets and the children that they bred afterwards, the children don't want to have these skill sets though as well. They don't want to take up the trade that their ancestors have. They don't see it as legitimate money-making uh, careers. So we have to reintroduce. You got to add that as well. I agree yeah. with you. So that means, Javette, we have to reintroduce the concept of trade and the importance of trade. Because, you know, you're right. Everybody wants their child to be a lawyer everybody we have more law in a jamaica than we have law that's how flooded we are in jamaica everybody in a jamaica want to be a lawyer you have lawyers in jamaica who not have no jobs that's how um flooded we are everybody want them child to be a lawyer not because they want they feel their child will make a good lawyer but because they want the status that's what they're focused on, status. Everybody, and I laugh at this one, Lord, forgive me for this one. But I, 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 I kind of chuckle when I hear some people say, Lord, my, my daughter, them a big, big nurse up there now in the States. I'm like, oh, uh, but from what I know, they're not a nurse. They work in a nursing home, but they're not a nurse. But not my business. Drink water, man, my business. But people are more focused on status. No, they have removed the pride from being a plumber. I remember the plumber that I saw growing up. It was the one plumber that my father used. Anything wrong with him, sure, Mr. Mack. For years. 
Great conversation. You learn a lot from these people. Carpenter, same one to this very day. If anything needs to be fixed. Mechanic, same one from me. Pitney to this day if anything needs to be fixed. And where is the pride in these um, trades? Where is it? How do we reinstate it? Go ahead, Donald. You see, if I should touch on what Javits said, yes, it is true. But what you find happening is a lot of these people, do they apply their trade? Their children see them working day in, day out and suffer through life. They don't have proper markets. They, don't, they barely make ends meet. And you tell yourself, listen, I am not going into that to suffer like my father. Now, what we can do as government agencies and so on is we can form the cooperatives. We can form institutions that can help to promote this stuff okay so if you're a farmer there are farmers that raise their crop and the entire crop failed then they have to find money to, to do another crop but if we have somewhere where you can go in as a cooperative and sell that produce and then that cooperative is taking it to market and talking to the hotel industry and so on that a hotel even know if I go to that cooperative I could say I want X amount of tomatoes whatever it is I need over a period of time and the cooperative as a collective would be able to supply it as opposed to one farmer trying to go to that hotel and every farmer trying to go to that hotel and everybody's selling the same tomatoes and stuff like that. If you have proper workshops where you train your mechanics and not just train them to fix cars, but you show them how to set up a small business in the process. Okay, this is what you need to do. This is how you, your accounting system needs to do. You don't have to be an accountant but this is what would be required if you have an accountant and if we have institutions where you have accountants that could go around and work with these local businesses to make sure that they could report properly so that they can send their reports and their monies to the bank and stuff so that when they go for a loan they have a proper history they have proper bank statements they have proper um you know, balance sheet and income statement mm -hmm, and stuff, mm -hmm. and the, the bank could see their cash flow and they could say, okay, this business is doing well. I can afford to give them a loan. So these are the things we have to look at. So we look at the end product, what we're not having, but we're not looking at how to fix it. Mm -hmm. A lot of these artisans died poor, and the children do not want to do it because they do not want to struggle and die poor. Mm -hmm. So how do we change the narrative? How do we make it profitable for these people? because they play important role in society. How do we give them prominence? How do a farmer walk and feel good because he has money in the bank and could sit on a table with, with a lawyer and say, listen, we're paring together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These are the things we have to look at. Right, agreed. Thank you, Donald. Go ahead, Javette. So I just want to throw one more thing in there. Sure, sure. So. My uncle in my uncle in Miami, where you guys is, mm -hmm. his trade is a um, car repair. Uh, what do you want to call mechanic, it? Mechanic, auto mechanic, mechanic. Body That's work? his trade. Oh, to man. this to this day, he is a mechanic. And one of the reasons I got into accounting is because when I spent my summers in Florida, my uncle always had his own business. I would go into his office, that was part of my job in the summer, and fix everything that he left by the wayside. Mm -hmm. May it be the bills, may it be the taxes, may it be the monies that people owed him. That was my job. And I felt pride doing that. I didn't know nothing about this. 
but because I was a child and that was my task, I taught myself. Right. So I gave my uncle the same thing that Donald is saying. I gave my uncle the wherewithal to start saying, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, whatever, whatever. I found out this, whatever, whatever. But I did that. Right. So even to say that we saw our parents struggling or our grandparents struggling and we wanted to shy away, why didn't we take it upon ourselves to say, okay, let me help you do it this way? Right. Even if you didn't want to join the trade. Exactly. Even if you didn't want to do the trade, why didn't you not step in now that you have this knowledge? Because the knowledge is there. Why didn't you take it upon yourself to do it as well? So I don't think it's as a easy fix as saying, I just think everything needs to be, you know, taken in mindset of how we can repair these type of things. Right. Even if it's just me going back, because you guys know I do a lot of volunteer work as yes, well. Yes. Okay. So I, I don't know. Yeah. All of it, all of it needs to be explored right and hashed out agreed um let me jump to the chat real quick thank you javette thank you donald so dre put in the chat they also took those skills out of school i remember when i started jc we had woodwork class i made a baseball bat we had electrical technical drawing auto mechanics and by the time i left jc all those skilled classes was taken away so the ministry of education has some role to play in this then dre yes they do um yeah and we had welding and um i remember growing up right my great grandmother this is how she gauged things right because they didn't have much education back then so she had seven um children right and this is how she gauged things she sent them to school who she saw that was doing well she said this is her words. Oh, they can take the education. She sent those kids to college. Then you had the other kids that um, didn't do so well in school. So she sent those to learn a trade. And I guarantee you moments, it opened my eyes that I don't look down on any trade man because in my family, from hmm. those seven kids, we had accountant, judge, lawyers, right? Mm-hmm. If you're in a bind today and you need 50 grand, mm -hmm. I guarantee you my uncle that's a judge, the lawyer, the accountant, they cannot find that money and give you. <laughs> but the one, the trade that everybody looked on, on the body work, man, I guarantee you he's going to go up in the roof. I said, how much you need? <laughs> Cash. My uncles and then, then his children. I, I have a few cousins that are mechanics. And some also took up the bodywork trade. I guarantee you, those guys always have money. Always. I had a roommate um, when I used to live in Deerfield Beach. He, he was a, a bodywork dude. And he was planning for his retirement. <laughs> Moments. <laughs> that man worked seven days a week. And he was doing bodywork. And that man by his land in Mandeville, built his sports bar, cash, hmm. bought a house in Mandeville, cash. He's still in America to this day, going easy now, and when he's ready, 
he's going home back to Jamaica to his business and his house all cash and he does and he does what for a living he did what for a living body work thank you fixed yes so um i seen it with my eyes right so they 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 took these things out of school they looked down on this profession like plumbing welding um i remember when i was deciding what school what school i want to go right so say all right we're gonna go to broad college right and one of my friends, I don't know what happened. He didn't get in, and he went to Atlantic Technical uh, and did ATC. welding. Mm-hmm. Yes, and did welding. Listen, <laughs> this dude never home. There's <laughs> a lack of welders in the states. They send him all over the country to do welding, right? Because they always build in big building and whatever, and they need welders. And this dude is strapped with cash. And I'm looking at it, and I was like, damn, I should have went to ATC. <laughs> <laughs> so um, one of the things we need to do is change our mindset Yes. on these trades because these kids think that these people don't make money. Trust hmm. me, they're making more money than the people, them that have the actual people. You better believe it. You better believe it. Thank you for that, Dre. We yes. need to change our mindset. And uh, Geely put in the chat, uh, that she did woodwork construction in secondary school and she doesn't think they even teach it anymore so we again i'm gonna point my finger if you know i mean i like just play um put blame on government i always try to see how we all play a role in whatever issues we have but in this one in this particular one i am going to hold the ministry of education responsible even if the children say, boy, I'm not going to need that, you know, when we get older. You never know what path you may end up having to take later on. At least you will have a skill that you can fall back on. Because, yes, we have our plan A, B, C, D, right? I'm saying I must have too many plans. But let us say you lose your job and it takes you six months to find a job. You know what you could be doing in that six months? Probably fixing cars, probably changing oil. Probably going out there on the roadside and changing tires for people and making some money in the meantime. Even if you don't want to use the skill as a way to make a living, you have it to fall back on. Say, if me need for fixing anything at the house, call plumber. I forgot to call one plumber and pay them how much money. If I bring in somebody to fix the AC, me have to pay them how much money. If I may add. Yes, Jocelyn. Thank you. You know, we all have to be blamed for this. If, like, as you guys know, I'm from St. Vincent. If I go to a tea party, any type of function, who do they honor? They don't honor mechanics and plumbers and electricians. It's the scholars, you know, the people who did well in school, that comes easily to them. Not everybody is wired to be a lawyer and a doctor. So if you don't provide, you know, the opportunity in, in, like you said, you know, they've taken this out of school that, you know, other people could realize, okay, I I can do well as being a plumber or a mechanic. They've removed these things from school. So even, you know, parents did this and and the kids... (laughs) And don't have the um, the ability. There are other people in society who want to do these things, 
but it's the stigma that's attached as well, that they struggle to do well in school, even though they are not wired for chemistry and physics and all that, mm -hmm. just to please their parents. So it's, you know, like I said, we need to, to um, pay the same type of respect to sanitation workers as we do to doctors. I don't care how long they went to school for. Sanitation workers are, are as important, if not more important than doctors. You better believe So we need to change the way we look at things and then the things we look at change. Jocelyn, we need the sanitation workers to cut down on the um, amount of diseases, right? Because if they don't clean up, we're living in filth and the filth creates diseases. Not so? So everybody has an important role to play. We are like a tree. A tree has several branches and every branch is needed. Go right ahead. James, yes. good morning. Yeah, morning, morning. everyone. Okay, hold yeah, on, I, naturalist. I, hold on, naturalist. James, then naturalist. Yeah, I think I think this one, like the government, should take full responsibility for this one because, you know, I remember back in the days, like when you know going to like a technical school was like a big deal when you're going to stats or stats or dental or one of those schools. Um, most of those um, kids graduate and they, they went to UTech, and you know I have two brothers that um, went to stats. And when they were coming to Canada, like, you know, being a lawyer or being um, in finances or, or stuff like that, Canada have this thing called Skill Workers Program. Because of their, their technical skill, like in um, one of them did like electrical, um, air condition repair, those type of stuff. You could just, you could just fast track himself, um, file for citizenship for himself and his family to come to Canada because of those skills. The other one did, um, like, um, engineer thing that, you know, he he studied at, at Stats and went to UTech and, and did, like, like drawing, building drawings and stuff like that. He was able to fast track. You know, like, a lot of the communities, like, especially Portuguese, a lot of Portuguese in Canada, Portuguese young men leave school at 15 years old. And these guys are, are, are making millions of dollars in the construction industry because one thing we realize is that the construction industry is never going to slow down anytime soon. And now, looking in Jamaica now, because I used to do woodwork, like, in grade seven, you know, the first thing you have to... Everybody, every one of the guys and girls, like, you had to learn to make a picture frame. I remember them teaching us how to make picture frame and, and framing it up, and you take home your picture frame and you feel proud. But... We, we we walked away from that and now um, we're looking at a bunch of um, young men that just sitting home, don't want to do anything. And yeah, it, like it's our fault because, you know, the world is always looking for skills people to, to help them build their economy. And, you know, I, I think the government dropped the ball with that one. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, James. Go ahead, naturalist. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Um vocational school i would say that that's true i would say that actually um saved me like, uh, being a child i was just you know in all kind of madness uh growing up um, i first started trying to do um ac and then i moved to um auto body and i could not take the dust and that's when they 
they gotta just put me in the, in the mechanic class. But for some reason, once I went into the mechanic class, my interest just got spiked because all of a sudden you're seeing our engine is is our our function, the combustion chamber, and all these things that really spiked my interest. And I would say that vocational class now was the turnaround in my life because now I had to go to like three day go to my regular class, then go to the like three day <clears throat> excuse me like uh, three days a week. And um, I've been a mechanic ever since. And uh, I enjoy doing it. And one of the greatest thing is I've seen, um, you know, college is great. You know, I encourage college. My daughter's in college, she's a college graduate. But as you say, it is, it is, it wasn't for me. And it is not for everyone. I've seen so many folks waste millions of dollars, a thousand of dollars, go to college and come back out and it's like, nah. I've seen so many folks with master degrees and higher education that can't even walk in my shoes as far as we're, you know, finance is concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm just an hustler in general, um, but I, I, I do think that needs to be back in school, not just in Jamaica, but in schools all over this country. But even now in New York City, you know, I got, got a friend, he's a welder, and he's just totally always busy, and they make some ridiculous money. I'm like, maybe that's what I could have done, but <laughs> yeah, vocational school is, is very important, but uh, we made society put a stigma, mm-hmm. regular job. And if you're not a doctor, lawyer, so on and so forth, uh, there's there's no promotion it and you know celebration it. Just like, oh, you're you're a sanitation worker, oh, you're a mechanic, you know. And uh, I had some girls say, oh man, you know, I, I don't want a mechanic. And now they're they're, they're single, still looking for somebody. Mm-hmm. Anyway, <laughs> different story. I'll land there. Thank you, naturalist. Thank you. Uh good morning. Who opened their mic? Who was that? That's me. Okay, I'm blind this morning, Donald. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, what I have to say is, I think we inherit um, a colonial curriculum for our education system, mm-hmm. and I think it's time we revisit our education system. Look at what the needs of our societies are, especially in the Caribbean context and redesign the education system to fit that. We need farmers, we need mechanics, we need plumbers, we need we have to start to prioritize these these fields until we have sufficient people in these areas to properly service our economy and by as such diversify our economies. Because the same lawyers and doctors and so we have right now would get more work mm-hmm. if we have more people doing these these, these stuff and out there making money. You understand and a lot of the, the young men that are not academically inclined that end up on the blocks and stuff like that and some of them becoming a minister society as naturally just pointed out put them in fields that would excite them where they could actually make money put money in their pocket and there is no need to feel like they're they're useless because some of them have no hope so we have to revisit the education system and us in society also have to revisit how we look at certain jobs and so on agreed Agreed. Thank you, Donald. Thank you so much, everyone, for your comments and your input. So what we can do as parents or, you know, if our children have already aged out of school, we can um, encourage other parents to ask these schools to put these programs back in place. In the Caribbean, us in the diaspora should be able to have a voice. 
and recommend make these recommendations to the Ministry of Education in the relevant countries so that they can re-implement these programs. Um, the school, the high school that my two younger sons go to, they have to do they have to do a trade. So the older the older one who graduates this year, he took up woodwork and he has made some beautiful pieces. And the other one, he took up um, pottery. And then this year, he's doing um, cooking. You have to be listen. These chefs out here be taking things to a whole nother level. But anyway, you never know. As naturally said, you don't know what you might ignite within that person. And all we have to do is expose them to something all right go i don't like think it was you add? okay J jocelyn and then donald go ahead yes you know when i go back to visit i'm sometimes amazed at the old ways of doing things like picking fruits like people endangering themselves and you know farming techniques and and all the chemicals that and pesticides they're using at home um, so, you know, it's a small island, 110,000 people. And if we could, like, partner with countries that are willing, you know, to, to teach in those areas that we're lacking, like, you know, um, I'm sure, like, the Scandinavian countries, you know, partner with one of them. Send the kids there to learn, um, you know, about um, climate change and those things. So we could really um, enhance our society by just partnering. There are countries that I'm sure would be willing to do that because we're so small and, and limited in our resources. Great point. Thank you, Jocelyn. Okay, Donald, you go right ahead and then we're going to have to keep it moving. Go ahead, Donald. For those of us in the diaspora, there is a lot of apprentices programs that are out there in the, in the trades where people that already left school, young men, whatever, could get into this apprenticeship program and graduate as mechanics in the various fields. So this is something we can look at now. Look okay. at those apprenticeship programs that is linked to the various trades and they would be able to graduate into. As a matter of fact, most of these programs pay you while you're in the program because you work and study. Yes. Yes. All right. Thank you, everyone, for your comments. I didn't mind taking the extra time on this topic because it speaks to the future of our economies, but more importantly, to the future of our children. All right. And again, I hope the right people are listening and that it's not falling on deaf ears and that they will reconsider their current course of action up next uh the director general of the ministry of sport has been kidnapped story courtesy of haiti.lootnews.com armed individuals kidnapped the director general of the ministry of youth sports and civic action mario florville the kidnapping was perpetrated this tuesday february 28 around 7 30 a.m on the roads the kidnapping of the senior state official occurred when the victim was about to play sports not far from his residence the kidnappers have already made contact with a relative of the hostage but the bandits have not yet advanced an amount as a ransom and that's according to an executive of the mjsac at the same time no information is available on the kidnapping of the chief of protocol of the national palace wow and that happened on february 19. also out of haiti courtesy of jamaica observe well the report is out of jamaica but it's relevant to haiti courtesy of jamaicaobserver.com 
Haiti says urgent need is to protect citizens from gangs. Following a one-day Caribbean Community CARICOM mission to Haiti to see firsthand the situation at the troubled French-speaking member nation, Jamaica's Prime Minister Andrew Holness has reported that stakeholders want urgent action to secure residents who are under siege from violent gangs. Holness led the working visit on Monday for what CARICOM said was in a brief statement issued after the trip, the first opportunity for CARICOM officials to observe the situation on the ground and directly engage stakeholders in the continuing search for a solution to the ongoing situation in Haiti. Stakeholders expressed the urgency of national security and the need to safeguard the Haitian population from gangs. The seven-member group met with Haiti's Interim Prime Minister Dr. Ariel Henry, Director General of the Haitian National Police, and a variety of stakeholders, including representatives of the High Transition Council, political accords, political parties, civil society, religious groups, and the private sector in the country, which is facing political and security instability, with unrelenting gang violence a key feature in everyday life. Also, the United Nations, well, an ex-UN official, is saying Haitians must be part of the solution to the chaos. And this is also courtesy of JamaicaObserver.com via the Associated Press. Award-winning Haitian broadcaster Michelle Montas follows the chaos in her home country every day from her apartment in New York. She has a simple answer to why peace remains elusive and violence is worsening in the country. Haitians were never part of any solution. Montas, who was exiled three times and served as spokesperson for the former United Nations Secretary General, said in an interview with the Associated Press that this was the main reason foreign interventions and aid efforts have largely failed, including after the devastating 2010 earthquake where lives were saved, but there wasn't help rebuilding the country. And we have the same problem today, she went on to say. We have gang wars in Haiti. We have a situation where people are dying. People are being kidnapped on a daily basis. People are afraid to leave their homes. But if Haitians aren't part of the solution, there is no outside help that can do it for Haitians. We know it, and Haitians know it. Montas's husband, Jean-Dominique, a or Jean-Dominique, as they correctly pronounced it, a Haitian journalist and human rights and democracy activist was assassinated in April 2000. And that happened as he was driving into the radio station that he took over in 1972, which they helped build into the country's leading news outlet. Radio Haiti Inter was the first station to broadcast mainly in Creole, the language spoken by Haitians rather than French, the language of the elites, and to do political analysis and, and investigative reporting. Montas took over running the station after his death, but closed it in February 2003 after she was shot at and her bodyguard was killed. Montas, who speaks almost daily to family and friends in Haiti, said the High Transition Council that Pr Prime Minister Ariel Henry announced in December and appointed in February is not large enough and representative enough to ensure elections in a country with no democratically elected institutions and where she and other Haitians consider Henry illegitimately holding power. He assumed power shortly after the July 2021 assassination of President Jovenel Moïse. Henry, 
and the country's Council of Ministers sent an urgent appeal on October 7 to the United Nations, calling for the immediate deployment of a specialized armed force in sufficient quantity to stop the crisis in Latin America's poorest nation caused partly by the criminal actions of armed gangs. There have been at least three foreign military interventions in Haiti, led by the United States and the United Nations since the early 1900s. And at a Security Council meeting in late January, neither the U.S. nor Canada showed any interest in leading a new intervention. At that meeting, U.N. Special Envoy for Haiti, Helene Lalime, who backs U.N. Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez, calls for a force pointed to an increase in homicides and kidnappings in Haiti for a fourth straight year in 2022. She said the 1,359 kidnappings last year was more than double the number in 2021 and killings were up a third to 2183, touching all segments of society, including former presidential candidate and director of the National Police Academy. Montas said in Monday's interview in her Manhattan apartment that the Canadians concluded after speaking to Haitians that no military intervention would work, but she said the National Police could do much more if they had the proper help. So, that's where we stand with updates as it relates to Haiti right now. Um, so, they have never been included, the Haitian people. Why not? Why not? So, go ahead, go ahead, Brazil. Morning, morning, morning. I was just trying to um, verify. So what's CARICOM, what's CARICOM objective? Um, I guess just to try to be fully clear, what, what's their... Uh, yeah, what are they trying to do exactly? So that's what we're trying to figure out too and um, that's what they're trying to figure out what can be done um there's a need for national security there's a need to safeguard the haitian population from gangs uh there is a need for democracy to be reinstated um there there's a need for structure and organization so now it is a matter of how do we go about in um reinstating those said things Go ahead, Prezi, go ahead. No, I was just saying it seemed like an uphill task, but I guess in terms of just to get, uh, you know, full clarity and understanding, um, you know, because, you know, just looking at the conditions that, you know, Haiti is in currently, and, I mean, based on the statistics that you were reading, I did not even realize that in terms of the rate of kidnappings and all of that that was taking place, um, you know, on a daily basis. You know, I would just be curious to see exactly, you know, I guess what kind of strategy they're, they're actually trying to think of doing, um, especially if you're, if you're, you know, looking at it. I'm not sure if it's, if it's a collaborative effort given that, you know, in the article it's stating that, you know, the United Nations and the U.S. is also, I guess, a part of it as well. But, you know, from a CARICOM um, perspective or from the CARICOM point, of, CARICOM point of view, you know, I guess just looking at the magnitude of and the state and the condition of, of Haiti 
of what how it is currently and you know, i guess it would be interesting to know exactly what you know kind of plan of action um or strategic or strategy there they, they would essentially try to come up with um but it just sounds like a very uphill task you know what i'm wondering Prezi? um because of what was highlighted in the second article um, as it relates to the, the role the United States and the United Nations has played in the denigration of Haiti. Um, could it be that because there is communication between these bodies and the Haitian leadership, which is um, deemed illegitimate, could it be that that's the reason for the continued unrest? I'm just here thinking. And that they're going to continue to um, be defiant and rebel until there is a cease in the communication, the involvement of of the the the, govern, the the leaders of Haiti right now, the interim leaders of Haiti right now, in terms of their trying to gain help from outside entities. Go ahead, Donald. Well, if you have a president that is seen by a large section of society has been illegitimate. That rendered that person powerless to some extent. Secondly, we had a case where Haiti was decapitated. I mean, they always had their problems, but you went in, assassinated the president, and literally flood the place with guns. Because they had their problems, but it has not been as widespread to my understanding as it is right now. Did, what happened to the institutions that was there before? Did everything just fall apart? Yes, they may have been weak. And then how are you going to implement a strategy that does not involve the Haitian people? What can CARICOM really do militarily without the help of the U.S.? And the U.S. has no keen interest in helping militarily. So as it is, it is left to probably try to organize some humanitarian aid to soften the impact somewhat. But as Prezi says, it's an up uphill task. It's an uphill task. And everybody was silent when the Haitian president was assassinated. And now we are surprised that the country is sinking into more chaos. Um. You know what? I don't even know. Is aid? You know, as you you mentioned the word aid, I was listening to a clip um that I heard on TikTok. The Ugandan leader is it president or prime minister? I'm not sure what the title is in Uganda, but he I can't remember exactly what the issue was as it relates to the United States. Again, the U.S. trying to tell them how to do something, how to conduct their business. And um, if they are not in alignment and how they're, you know, the aid that they can stop them from getting. And the Ugandan pr president said, well, that's the problem. Aid. Take your aid. We don't need your aid. Because that is the problem. You think you can control us with aid. Aid is what is a crutch that many countries have become dependent on and don't realize that the said aid is used against them. It's meant to hold you hostage some, somewhat. So is aid 
in terms of um, money, what they need in Haiti? What aid are we going to be talking about? Go ahead, I'm Donald. Ta- I'm talking about I'm talking about CARICOM going in and working with the local people on the ground and providing whatever support they can for communities to prevent mass migrations, to to prevent some of the hunger and stuff like that, to cushion those effects. But the solution has to be had. If you have to have a lasting solution, it has to come from within Haiti. Mm -hmm. It has to involve integrally the Haitian people. Too often we're trying to find solution and copy-paste it into people's societies. It has never worked. Facts. Thank you, Donald. Okay, let me jump to the chat real quick. Elle said they do not need the help of the U.S. They need the help of the rest of the island nations because Haiti could easily be any one of us. Um, And I guess in response to something you said, or I said, I'm not sure exactly. And that aid isn't always aid. And Geely put, not to mention too much aid kills a lot of industries within the country. And I think we have highlighted that before, Geely. Because if you're sending in something that was there or is there why are you sending something in you're you're now um purposefully going in to destroy one's economy why would i why should i import bananas if i grow bananas on a large scale and i export bananas why then you're going to tell me you're going to keep sending me ripe bananas because you know what's going to happen Eventually, people are going to say, oh, so I can't, but I am and forgot the farm and, you know, mulch and chop and put the bag over it to make sure rat no go upon it and all that. No. So now you're slowly showing people there's an easier way, a more convenient way, but not necessarily the best way. Very nice and everybody. Good morning, Apple. Uh, as not, I listen to not about it. Um, I uh, think last week or something like some come across one video, a long time video. So we buy do some interview. He wasn't president or anything like that at the time. So um, still kind of look a little bit <laughs> young, I guess. Um, so yeah, it's a very long time video. But never talk about Haiti and him say. Alright, my paraphrase. I remember exact word for word. That's okay. But, That's okay. Yeah, I what I find about the film, I can't make can I hear it. But it's like you must say, oh, if Haiti right now should um like sink, it, it's like you must say, oh, it, it is what it is. <laughs> but I was like, oh, okay. So these people, them, them, them not care about Haiti. It's like it's a punishment. Like how dare you, um, gain freedom? How dare you, uh, humiliate us? Like that, yeah, yeah, may I say, uh, and that is why them, them, them have them, them, um, make them pay how much, um, well, millions or trillions of dollars in their reparations to the, 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 to the slave owners, them, you know, what I mean, if, uh, uh, and it, as one said, them have iridium over there, the uh, type of resources over there where, um, it, it, it. it them use like you know, military vehicles and spaceships and stuff like that. So these people have no interest of saving Haiti. You get what I say? And we also see something where I think when uh Andrew Holmes when him just did make the visit to Haiti or something like that. And it's like you know the comments you have some Jamaican persons like, like them they never really 
um like support it. Because I must say, oh, for you go mobile, for you see what I go on, yeah, wrong, hate it. But to me, that that was ignorance, and them not know no better, so them just say whatever. You know, Jamaican people say, already, come out to stuff like that. Certain stuff is like them kind of no want to think logic and understand certain stuff. But that would Caricom. I go and I support them, 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 them fellow countrymen or them neighbor. But I see nothing wrong in that. Rather, and I think maybe Haiti would prefer that than for have like the UN or um, what we call them people, uh, like the US and all them people that intervene. And you know, and them know us at the end of the day, these people don't have them best interests at heart. They get me. And as well, I think we hear somebody say like them. Uh, some lady whether with was from there and she like get yeah, interview in her apartment or something like that mm-hmm. and she's like she say yo um them not include the Haitian people which is true they're not included the Haitian people they just talk to government when them put in 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 power after the assassination of the president they get me I say them just have talk to them hey what do you need what do you need but now actually talk to the people them pond the, the Haitian people them pond the ground they get me so they them not have no interest for for safety. Oh, they get me. They, yeah. Them not have no interest, and it, and it really and truly sad. All right, thank you everyone for your comments. Yes. Really okay, James, you'll be my last comment, and then I have to keep it moving. Go right ahead. Okay, yeah, I, I was gonna say like Caricom have to be involved, but I think they would have to be involved more on a humanitarian um, effort, like galvanize private sector, all these you know Grace Kennedy, Lasco all of these companies across the Caribbean um, and in in terms of a humanitarian effort, like what's happening with like um, Justin Trudeau, I think America is trying to, they're trying to use him as a, to, to intercede. Um, but I don't think he's comfortable doing it because his base in Canada is, um, he's living off his father's legacy. Um, his father, like, you know, people from the Caribbean, people from Africa, people from India love this father. His father was like a rock star to those people. And that's the legacy that he's living on. And I don't think he wants to anger people. So he's kind of threading carefully. But I believe that in terms of, obviously they, they don't trust the Americans to go there to help in terms of um, putting boots on the ground. They don't trust United Nations. So you have to look across the world now and see like which other force that could go there. And you'd have to look in Africa and say, okay, what about Nigeria? Nigeria have the most powerful um, force in, in Africa. Like what if there's something where they, they, they can provide security? Um, who's going to pay for it? I don't know. But it's obvious that they, they, they need multiple, they, they need to, to get the... the Get rid of this government that people don't trust. Put some interim government, opposition leaders, and bring everybody to the table. CARICOM, get involved and, you know, figure out where the, the, the boots on the ground is going to come from, as long as it's not coming from America or it's not coming from UN. But I think it's a holistic approach, like no one approach. Because, you know, we see what happened with the earthquake, with the, with the aid that people were getting molested, women were having to sleep with, with, with right. workers for, for aid and stuff like that. And people don't trust, the, they don't trust the UN and they don't trust America. So, but, so a new face have to be there. But No, no, no. But, why are we, but here's the thing, James, and this is the problem. Nobody not listening to the Haitians. They don't want 
anybody there. And the articles that I just read says both of them alluded to the fact that the issue has to be resolved in Haiti. So why are we going to invite somebody else into Haiti? They don't want it. And if we, exactly. keep, if we keep sending people to Haiti, it's going to continue to happen what's going on. So we need to listen to what the Haitian people are saying. And that's the problem. We, we, we can't, what, what, what Africa going there today? They don't want nobody in them country. They don't trust anybody. Can you blame them? Who assassinated the last president? Hmm. <laughs> Why is that still a mystery? You know, Haiti would always be punished for being the first free country in the in in you know free black country would always be punished from that if only france would give them back the money that they paid for their freedom what nonsense is that you know they should be attacking france not their own people i agree oh go ahead sorry no you know they should be i agree with you um jocelyn but i think they are so filled with frustration all right i'll go ahead one minute and i have yeah, to that's it. Yeah, yeah the element that's Haiti isn't exactly money either money doesn't solve the problem there's so much i mean why would we invite another foreign nation into the islands i mean it's just another uh, occupying force when you invite others into the ecosystem yes it has to be an internal solution but it has to be all the island nations supporting so it's continuous help because we all have a um have something to benefit if all the nations are being supported properly if we come together, they need continuous help. They don't need another occupying force. Right. Like I said, we can, any of us, any of our nations can become another Haiti, you know, and become destabilized because there's money in chaos. Mm-hmm. So we should all go in there and try to support, not just financially, but try to keep those negative people at bay because there's not continuous help because there's no mechanisms in place to keep people from, uh, you know, coveting, the uh the support we give that's why the problems we have the army are the most of the army is filled with a bunch of kids or a bunch of bad eggs that cause problems and that's whether it's the u.s or the the nigeria whoever else they're just bad uh there's a lot of times there's nothing but bad eggs we've seen what the military can do when they're in uh when they're in places where people are experiencing stress there's rape, there's violence, there's theft, there, there's all sorts of things happening. So it needs to be a solution within our island ecosystem to oh. support them in, in their journey to becoming, you know, st- uh, stable. Not perfect, but stable so they can move forward. Exactly. All right. Thank you, everyone, for your comments. Thank you, Elle. Appreciate everyone's input in this vibrant conversation. Our next story, we head on down to Trinidad and Tobago. TT.loopnews.com is reporting that the country's first low exhaust tugboat has arrived in the country called the National Energy Resilience. In a statement, the Minister of Energy and Energy Industries said Energy Minister Stuart Young joined state-owned National Energy Corporation of TNT Limited, National Energy, to officially welcome Trinidad and Tobago's first low-exhaust tug to the company's vessel fleet. The ministry said a vessel commissioning ceremony was held at the Hyatt Regency and was attended by stakeholders from the maritime and energy sectors. The ministry said the new 60-ton bollard pull tug named National uh, energy resilience, NER, 
is IMOTR3 certified with technologies that reduce its nitrous oxides emissions by 80%, making it the cleanest tug operating in Trinidad and Tobago, and at this time, the second in the region. Awesome, awesome, awesome. We have to care for our nature. Uh, Kodak Black. It's just some entertainment news, some brew. Kodak Black has been arrested after a failed drug test. Wasn't he the one that um, Trump pardoned? Hmm? Didn't he get a pardon from Trump? Okay, so he showed yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's okay, the one. he's the one. That's what I thought. Um, so he showed up. <laughs> um, he was wanted in the state of Florida after failing a drug test earlier this month and violating the terms of his bail in the process. TMZ had obtained legal docs showing that a judge signed off on an arrest warrant for the ZZ rapper on Thursday. The docs were filed into the Broward County Court on Friday and uh, Kodak is to be arrested. He was arrested. He was in custody. He went to court yesterday. And um, the drug tests that were done, they found traces of, is it fentanyl or something like whatever it is. Yeah, I think fentanyl um, in his system. But he's currently out on bail for possession and trafficking charges. Uh, he posted his $75,000 bond. Um, he's being allowed to go to rehab for 30 days as well as he's being allowed to go and perform at Rolling Loud. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I can't help you. Oh, also, I got to give you all this one. Uh, learn to drink water and mind your own business, folks. That's what Nick Cannon is telling us because he says only God can decide how many children he will have. Courtesy of Baller Alert, uh, the masked singer host who is 42 years old, in speaking with Entertainment Tonight, said, God decides when we're done, but I definitely got my hands full. He is the father of 12, and he says his procreating powers, could, prowess, could last for decades. He says, and I'm so focused, I'm locked in, but when I'm 85, you never know. I might have more. Is there How are you going to post on the internet and then tell people to mind their business? Exactly. Tell me that one. Exactly. Right. I don't, but I don't give a crap. Nick Cannon, go ahead. Populate the world. Just don't <laughs> touch my uterus. Okay, done. <laughs> this, this is just this. I'm sorry. You know what? I mean, we're going to take a quick music break. A little more from Patti LaBelle as we celebrate her as our hashtag WCW artist for today. Here she, here she is singing If You Asked Me To. Just smile. 
thank you to everyone listening online, QMZRadio.com, the Quality Music Zone. For quality music while you work or play, remember to keep it logged on to www.QMZRadio.com for that good music to get you through your day. Where there'll be nothing, nothing to do But simply walk around heaven all day When I get to heaven When Patti LaBelle won a talent competition at her high school, John Bartram High School, this success led to her first singing group, the Ordettes, in 1960 with schoolmates Jean Brown, Yvonne Hogan, and Johnny Dawson. With LaBelle as front woman, the group became a local attraction until two of its members left to marry, while another was forced to quit the group by her religious father. In 1962, the Ordettes included three new members, Cindy Birdsong, Sarah Dash, and Nona Hendricks, the latter two girls having sung for another now-defunct vocal group. That year, they auditioned for local record label owner Harold Robinson. Robinson agreed to work with the group after hearing LaBelle sing the song, I sold my heart to the junk man. Initially, Robinson was dismissive of LaBelle, believing her to be too dark and too plain. Every day will be Sunday, my Lord. Sabbath will. Don't know about you, but I can speak for myself. Something about her voice gives me chills. An undeniably powerful voice powerful stage presence every time i hear one of her songs i always think about her kicking her shoes off and i have to say thank you sonette for the reminder how could i forget to mention that it is women's history month
Patti LaBelle, the godmother of soul. I love this one. Nobody can tell you, woman, what you're worth. No one. Know your worth. Know who you are and walk in your truth. Rise up, woman, and take your place. It's time for us to get back to business. We have some more stories to cover out of the Caribbean corner. Thank you for that reminder, Patti LaBelle. Anything featuring Mary Mary. All right, first up, we're going to jump to what Mr. Bartlett has to say. Let's hear what he has to say. Tourism industry must protect the marine environment story courtesy of nationwide radio jm and let me grab my see, i'm more prepared today i have my sound bites ready today folks I'm, I'm learning so minister of tourism edmund bartlett says players in the tourism ministry must take seriously their role in protecting the marine environment speaking tuesday morning at the port royal lecture series put on by the caribbean maritime university cmu minister bartlett says the industry can only thrive if the marine environment is healthy to ensure that the tourism industry plays its part in contributing to ocean sustainability, there needs to be what I call a seriousness of intent, purpose, and action among us, the tourism stakeholders, at all levels to address industrial action that harm ocean and marine resources. Such firm commitment to sustainable behavior and practices is necessary, I think, to help preserve the enormous benefits that healthy marine and coastal ecosystems to the economic livelihood and survival of billions of people globally. The non-governmental organization SustainableTravel.org says 80% of all global tourism takes place in coastal areas. Minister Bartlett says tourism must lead the way in championing the protection of ocean health. Admittedly, tourism-related activities impose significant stress on coastal and marine ecosystems. Thus, the sector must commensurately play a leading global role in adopting and encouraging more sustainable values, attitudes, and practices that will promote healthy ocean and marine ecosystems in the long run. That was the voice of Edmund Bartlett, Minister of Tourism. Up next, Chang encourages JCF members to keep pace uh, with technological advancements. This story also courtesy of Nationwide Radio JM. Minister of National Security Dr. Horace Chang is encouraging the members of the Constabulary Force to keep pace with the advances in technology. 
Dr. Chang made the remark on Tuesday at the annual passing out ceremony at the National Police College of Jamaica in Twickenham Park, St. Catherine. 285 trainee constables graduated. Dr. Chang delivered the keynote speech. You're entering the Jamaica Constable Force at a time of dramatic infusion of technology in all aspects of policing when the tools and tactics of 15 years ago no longer hold pride of place. Most of you, as I said, are digital natives. You grew up with the internet, high-speed connectivity, which meant having almost every immediate access to information at your fingertips. So too the criminals. Dr. Chang urged the constables to take pride in their new role. Having successfully completed your training, I am sure you will go out into society more confident, more assured in your purpose as individuals and as a Jamaican law enforcement officer. You will need that self-confidence to take on the multiple challenges that you will face each day. Be brave, be confident. You are a Jamaican police officer. Your training and intuition are invaluable resources. Be true to yourselves, your families, and your country. Dr. Chang is asking the new recruits to treat all law-abiding citizens with the respect they deserve. Importantly, as you engage the citizens, I want you to remember that there is no privilege under the law except for the law-abiding, the privilege to be law-abiding. Every citizen is equal in the eyes of the law, whether they are from the inner city or well-to-do. Your service must always be professional and respectful of every individual citizen. That was Dr. Horace Chang, Minister of National Security. A woman among three held in connection to illegal gun seizure. This one is also courtesy of Nationwide Radio. A woman is among three people taken into custody yesterday morning following the seizure of a firearm and several rounds of ammunition in Savage Pen, Gordon Town in St. Andrew. The Constant Spring Police say the gun, a .38 revolver, along with five-point rounds of ammunition, were found under a mattress at the premises. Another room at the same premises was searched and a man was found hiding from the lawmen. He was reportedly found with 24 rounds of ammunition in his possession. Lest we forget this story courtesy of JamaicaObserver.com. The unveiling of a 12-foot monument titled Lest We Forget, bearing 128 names representing some of the enslaved people who worked on the Appleton estate during slavery, is being hailed as a revolutionary step by J. Ray and Neveu. The Rum Company, a member of the Campari Group, consulted a team from the Center of Reparations Research of the University of the West Indies in selecting the design for a monument paying tribute to the enslaved people. The unveiled monument, conceived and built by Glenmuir High's visual arts teacher, Trishana Henry, shows the relationship between sugarcane and the socio-cultural and economic development of Jamaica. The names of some slaves who worked on the plantation during the ownership of the then-slave-owning Dickinson family have been incorporated in the monument. Culture Minister Olivia Babsy-Grange said the monument pays homage to our enslaved ancestors whose unpaid labor was at the root of the Appleton estate success story. Our blood, sweat, and tears are parts of this experience, she told her audience at the unveiling ceremony for the monument at Appleton Estate on Monday. Some might say it is long in coming, but let us acknowledge this as a demonstration to the world that the company is aware of the contributions of our enslaved ancestors 
to its success and it's commemorating the effort of those enslaved ancestors. The culture minister said she will be lobbying for the Jamaica National Heritage Trust to declare Appleton Estate as a heritage site. To date, JNHT has declared over 300 heritage sites as national monuments, and interestingly enough, this is a heritage site. But it is not yet declared, and with all the important things that are happening and us really connecting and closing that circle as the minister responsible for declarations, I am not only inviting J. Ray and Nephew and Campari to ensure that this property is declared, but I will instruct the JNHT to do so. She added that the Appleton Railway Station was declared a heritage site in 2003. Um, I have a question. My love, my rum. I love my Jamaica. J. Ray and Nephew rum. Best rum in the world, if you ask me. Sorry, folks. Uh... Does the government of Jamaica have any stake ownership? Do they own any part of J. Ray and Nephew? Or is it all privately owned? Does anyone know? Spare me having to go to Google. Okay, to Google I go. Please pardon my typing. J. Ray and Nephew. Here we go. Uh... The, owned by the Campari Group. Da, 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 da. The history of J. Ray and Nephew began in 1825 when company founder J. Ray opened the Shakespeare Tavern in Kingston, Jamaica. Kingston grew steadily and eventually became Jamaica's capital in 1877 and the Shakespeare Tavern became very successful. In 1860, Ray brought in Charles James Ward, the son of his brother, to run the business out of the company. Ward was a dynamic and gifted entrepreneur, and under his leadership, Jay Ray never began a period of growth and prosperity. Ray retired in 1862 and died in 1870, leaving Ward as the sole proprietor of the business. Mm, let's fast forward. Okay, who... So from what I'm seeing here, it is all privately owned. So, since there is the recognition that Appleton, part of its success, is owed to the slaves, besides the monument and making it a national heritage site, what else can they do? I think that's a rhetorical question for them. But seriously, though, I think more can be done. I honestly believe that a part of the profits should go to the government of Jamaica and it be um, used for specific purposes. Possibly the, the families, if they are traceable, those communities that were a part of the Appleton estate and its um, uprising, to see to it that certain infrastructures in place make sure they have up to the time modern healthcare facilities, the schools are to be um, envied for the want of a better term. Just some thoughts I'm here throwing out. What are your thoughts on the matter? Go ahead, James. Yeah, um, they're one of the companies in Jamaica that do a lot of work, though. They, okay. they do a lot of work in. Um, in Kingston 11, they are very involved, like in um, a lot of the sport, the sports program. Okay. Like um, soccer program, um, 
the um in the waterhouse area like yeah they, they do they do a lot of work okay i i know that for sure they do a lot of work yeah all right so they are giving back and they have been giving back yes yes they're, they're one of the they're one of the good ones that <laughs> that yeah that i don't know if they could give back more but they, they they have been giving back for you know since i was a boy and that was a long time ago so yeah <laughs> From the time I was a boy, in the voice of Charles Hyatt. Okay, all right. I'm glad to hear that. It's important that we hear these things. Very important. So you said sports. What else you said again, James? Short-term memory leaving me. What you just said again? Sports and what else? They, they do sports and they do like um, beautification of um, certain areas. They, they had a program where they were, they renovated um hundreds of bars in jamaica bar okay sorry yeah bar like yeah they're, they're like um i don't know if loan was involved mm -hmm. but they they give like a lot of bars like facelift um equipments they they equip them with certain things mm -hmm. and some of the they bring them up to you know reasonable standard where you, you know you used to go and see some little zinc up stuff and whatever mm -hmm. and they, they they put they put money into that even though like yeah, it benefit them also, but it also benefit a lot of those single mom that were were you know running their bar like in the the waterhouse, like Sea View, like in in that vicinity. Mm -hmm. Like there years ago, like you couldn't drive past anywhere without seeing. Like they logoed it. They 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 make sure they put their stamp on it. Mm -hmm. But at least it looked good. Okay, so I'm seeing the article you're talking about. It um, appeared in the Jamaica Gleaner back in June 2020 uh, that J Ray and Nephew pumps $35 million into community bar revival where they were able to resuscitate over 500 bars, specifically in Western Jamaica. All right, I see that there. But I'm looking for more, I guess, that not satisfy me at all. I, and I applaud that because, yes, single mothers are able to run their businesses and feel proud of their business. But I, I guess I'm looking for a little more when I'm I, I'm talking about healthcare and education, that sort of thing. Um, let me. That's that's what I'm looking for. I'm sorry. I'm being very ungrateful right now. <laughs> still love your rare never Still love on her own. <laughs> and not like some. Rare never in my coffee, rare never to rub you down when you're feeling chills, when you're having chills and you get that fever out your system. Um, let me see. Here's another article. Let me see if I see anything here. Ray and never white overproof rum and Jamaican gold joe. I'm still not seeing anything beyond the bars, James. So. <laughs> and you know, when you're putting up, you know, when you're putting up, um, your house if you're building anything in jamaica you have to after you clear the land and you, you, you um put your outline for where your foundation gonna go you know you have to kill a goat and pour the rum and all of that on the land y'all know that right <laughs> it's a part of our culture you have to bless the place um women well, know a lot about the rum you know <laughs> Love it, man. Um, you, you know, so that come, uh, yeah, African thing that you know that, right? Yes. Uh, like, uh, yeah, come from um, um, Vodum or Voodoo. Some people know it as spirituality. So, yeah, man. Yeah, and if you're going, if you're going, um, chant and all them things, you have to have your, um, your psalms. What's the psalms you have to have? You have to have your psalms, your white candle, your crow leaf, 
your head have to tie up and you have to have what? Jerry and nephew white overproof rub. No way yeah, with it. Yeah, because the, the, the spirits them love um, alcohols. <laughs> That's why I think they call the rum spirit. <laughs> they call it alcohol spirit. So and it make you get to that spirit too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, turn you over, man. You know, so the music, oh man. It appeased the, the, the ancestors, you know. All right. Okay, so I, I'm going to dive a little bit more on my own and see what else I can find out as it relates to Ray Nevy's contribution beyond the rum bar. And, no. uh, so go as ahead, I said, Mom, As I said, they, 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 do, they did, like, uh, since I was about, like, 10 years old or whatever, I can't remember. They 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 played like um an integral part in, in the football infrastructure. Like mm -hmm. Jamaica don't go to the World Cup without their support. Okay. Um they did I know that like the, 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 the league, they had a lot to do with the league. And it might seem very it might seem small, but that league took a lot of, of guys away from guns. Like when when you grow up in, in Waterhouse and you see Waterhouse used to play and you see Olympic Gardens used to play and every Sunday, like 10,000, 5,000 people, mostly men, and a lot of those guys were swinging guns before. Okay. So they, they played a part in that. They, they do beautification in certain communities too. I know Waterhouse community. I know like Olympic Gardens because I grew up right, Olympic Gardens right there, Cockburn Pen, and mm -hmm. they do a lot of work in those areas. So... A lot of it might not be documented, but they, they've done they've done their fair share. Okay, all right. So I'll take your word for it, James. All right, moving right along. Smadiness. How many of us have used the term? And I'll trouble about other islanders, but Jamaica, we always smaddy. Smaddy must say <laughs> smaddy is a word for us, right? S M A D D Y. But smaddiness is attracting Black American tourists, courtesy of JamaicaObserver.com. The Margaritaville Caribbean Group is seeing a noticeable increase in the number of African-American customers at its restaurants. A phenomenon tourism, Minister Edmund Bartlett, puts down to the sense of smadiness. The, dem the demography feels that <laughs> <laughs> when vacationing in Jamaica, you know what? I'm going to take a puppy show. There's been a phenomenon since covid uh, we have attracted a much higher level of disposable income, black American customers that we've never seen before in Jamaica, and they are spending. Well, that is according to Ian Dare, who is chairman and CEO of the Margaritaville Caribbean Group when speaking with the Jamaica Observer in a recent interview. The market segment is growing, and they're not only coming to hotels. They're also coming for experiences outside the hotels, and they're coming and spending their money. The trend Dare said he is seeing in his restaurants was confirmed by Bartlett as being widespread, though the minister said it would be hard to give numbers because the Jamaica Tourist Board, JTB, which is the agency responsible for the worldwide tourism marketing and promotion of Jamaica, does not ask visitors to indicate ethnicity on surveys and so it should remain. However, visually, you can see it. The number of African American because the last thing we want soon is gonna start divide up Jamaica and nobody with it. Okay, thank you. Let me just get that off my chest real quick. Carrying on. However, visually you can see it. The number of African American tourists coming to Jamaica has improved significantly. 
He said the JTB did a survey recently targeting African-Americans and found they said they feel comfortable vacationing in Jamaica. They say they feel like human beings when they come here based on how they are treated. There is no discrimination. And they pointed out that they don't feel harassed at all. It's like they feel a sense of smadiness. When they come here, the minister added, recalling a term first coined by the late Ralston Rex Nettleford, a Jamaican scholar and social critic, in reference to the sense of belonging and self-worth as an individual feels in how he or she is treated regardless of social or economic circumstances. Bartlett said the African-American tourists are also more willing to leave the hotels to interact with local communities and are driving business in and around resort areas. You know what? I have to give it up. Good job. That's good. Uh, however, since they re- we have reopened since the COVID lockdown, it is almost 50-50 between white and black Americans. Sometimes we have more African-American guests than their Caucasian countrymen and women, he added. All right, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> Go ahead, Donald. Women, well, that might just be an issue we might need to tap into in the Caribbean. Exactly. We target people of color in the diaspora. You know, and um, not just the diaspora, but like black Americans, black Brits and people like that. So maybe there might be something we can we can squeeze out of that to enhance our tourism product. Yes. So, you know, something, if anybody wants a T-shirt that says I'm a smaddy, you can hit me up. I do print T-shirts and I'll be happy to make one for you. So I'm a smaddy or may I smaddy, may I go smack it. I'm going to put it in true patofa. May I smaddy too. <laughs> go, <Yeah>. ahead. <laughs> go ahead james and then Apple. <laughs> yeah yeah I, I must say that I've, I've seen i've seen the change personally like compared to because 20 25 years ago like going to on the north coast mm-hmm. like i've always experienced like being like you know you go somewhere and you see like would go to like a resort and there's like a, one of those big resort like 600 people and you see one black couple and you just run to them like, you know, like you're, you're stranded somewhere and, and, and you see this one <laughs> type of people that you identify with, you know, in the sea of hundreds of white people, you see one. And it's just so ironic because every time you we go on the North Coast, mm-hmm. always find that one or two black couple and they will just hang out. Mm. You know, in, in recent times now, you go and the numbers, the numbers are, are, are a lot. There, there are a lot of, um, and not just, they say African-American, but no, like British people. There are a lot of British mm-hmm. um, that, that travel. And, and you know, when you, when you work in the tourism industry, you know that British people, you make probably twice more than Americans and British mm-hmm. because British stay twice as longer because of the trip that they have right, to take. Right, right. They, they, they normally um, stay longer. And what I've noticed with, with um, you know, tourists coming from like African-Americans or from Britain or Canada or, or even as far as Africa, yeah. like they support, they, they try to support more of the, the local owned. I don't know if they, they, they research it mm-hmm. and know that it's local owned because the last trip I, I went to Jamaica, I stayed at a local hotel okay. and 90, 99.9% was like black Americans and British. And okay. I've never seen that before. And it was like, 
owned by a black Jamaican, and that was a good thing to see. One thing I thank you, James. One thing I will ask the tourists coming out of the United States, the um, African American tourists, please ease up on the orders of the chicken wings. Jamaica is. Um, we have the chicken wing then, but Unagomeko runs short because it seems as though that is what they're ordering more of. Just eat, the, you know, make them chop up the whole chicken field, get the jerk chicken and deal with it like that. Now make we have a problem with chicken wings, please. Because that's what they're saying is in high demand when they're visiting the island. All right. Afa, I know you wanted to make a comment. I'll give you mm. one minute because I have to keep moving. Yeah, you know, um, what James are talking about, you can't see that when you go um, uh, Rio. In a ocho rios. When I went there in December and even before, come away for a little research, you know what I mean, and stuff like that. And trust me, compared to the one in Montego Bay, I'm mostly black people. Whether black from Canada, um, the US, England, wherever. Mm-hmm. Um, even same Jamaican people, them where might have some family member, you know, them come back and stuff like that, and then bring out their family or whatever, returnees, whatever it is. But I'm mostly black people. It's like, it's like majority of the audience are just pure black people, yes. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. but so James are talking about at Rio, you know, Ocho Rios. Okay. And, okay. and also, and that is why people for stop, both Africans, um, African American and the Caribbean, for stop, fall for the Okie Doke. Stop, make people create division. Because what these people see, say, oh, we, are, we start to go to these um, black countries, whether the Caribbean or Africa, and I support each other more. You know what I mean? I interact with the locals. I go, um, come out for the hotel grounds and, and, and you know, for support the locals, business and stuff like that. So, and trust and believe, when they might feel like them, uh, a lot of people now watch and, and see these stuff, but they might watch and they might report on it and stuff like that. So, people for just stop far for the okie doke. Yeah, I hear you, babes. People for just stop far for the okie doke and just go enjoy yourself, interact with people create business whatever it is all right gotta wrap up wrap up wrap up wrap up all right thank you thank you thank you thank you so much everyone um i saw your comment in the chat l um i'm gonna say this yes it's what they know but what i don't want to have happening in jamaica is that we start importing chicken wings that's that you know so you know go there embrace everything all right next up train in india high commissioner urges jamaicans courtesy of jamaicaobserver.com with 50 scholarships still up for grabs high commissioner of india to jamaica massa you know what let me not ruin his first name let me just use his last name wrong song is urging jamaicans to take full advantage of tertiary training opportunities on an offer from his country the scholarships are funded by the indian government and made available through their itec platform a flagship program that extends to friends of india such as jamaica the program offers training in professional fields for persons in the public and private sectors as well as university students the short-term courses, which are available in India and online and run from three weeks to three months, are fully sponsored, including free tuition, travel accommodation, and a stipend. Rong Sung said the scholarships are underutilized. The reason being the COVID pandemic. The potential candidates cannot travel to India because of travel restrictions, but... Now it opens up at least an opportunity. So wherever I go, I let the local dignitaries know about the existence of these programs, which are for both India and the friendly countries to benefit from. Rong Song, who has been assigned to Jamaica, 
uh, since two years ago, has made several visits across the country paying tribute to the Indian community, especially those over the age of 80. Uh, real quick fix for this, though. Um, if travel restrictions are still in place to some degree, you there was mention made in the article that you could... Uh, also do it online right for those who are able to take advantage of it online um how about you coordinate collaborate with the ministry i'm sorry with the university of the west indies because the university of the west of university of the west indies they have satellite stations throughout the island there are satellite locations those satellite locations have allowed people who are not able to go to to move to Kingston, um, it still affords them the opportunity to work on their bachelor's or master's. So, see how y'all can work this out with the university so that folks can take advantage of those satellite locations to pursue this. We should not have any excuse as to why no one is taking advantage of something that is free. Um, we know the Indians are great when it comes to tech. Many of them have built up the tech industry right here in the United States, and I want to say globally. So um, also work with community colleges. Work with community colleges. They In the evenings, they have rooms that are available um, if there are computer labs, depending on um, the time frame, see how those can be used. Minawa here no excuse. Say people in a Jamaica now have the opportunity, are not able to take advantage of the opportunity because of logistics. I don't want to hear it. Where there is a will, there is a way. I'm a done talk. Okay. Uh, all right, so that one wraps up our stories out of the Caribbean corner. Up next, we do have stories out of Latin America and the international scene. Here is another one from the one and only uh, Patty LaBelle. She's on her own.
today it is hashtag WCW we celebrate women and today we are celebrating Patti LaBelle through music it is also the beginning of women's history month this wasn't how it was supposed to be I wish that we could do it all again I want to give a big thank you to everyone tuned in and listening online the quality music zone qmzradio.com for quality music while you work or play, keep it logged on to www.qmzradio.com for that good music to get you through your day. Also, want to give a big thank you to everyone listening on janoradio.com. If you have not already done so, please go ahead and download the Jano Radio app. J-A-H-K-N-O. It is available in your Apple and Google Play stores. Jano Radio. Take us on the go, Clubhouse. We'll be right back I've waited a lifetime for someone just like you somebody who will take my hand someone who's warm and true romancing by candlelight a touch from you say a big thank you to my folks here on clubhouse after all this is where the conversation happens thank you for making it coffee in tow world news on the go if you are new to the space i do invite you to click on the greenhouse at the top and join the club we are here every monday through friday 9 a.m to 1 p.m eastern this is where i read the news and we share our views if another door doesn't open let's let that window crack see the light that's that's how it's been for me i've been shut down run down talked about dogged out
Once again, to everyone listening online, wherever you are in the world, we appreciate you logging on and listening on QMZRadio.com, the Quality Music Zone, and JohnNoRadio.com. Thank you so much to my Clubhouse family for being here with me. It's time for us to go ahead and get back to business. Coming up now, we have stories out of Latin America. Thank you, Patti LaBelle. That title track is New Day. Words of inspiration, right? All right, first up, dozens of forest fires scorch Cuba, threatening brittle economy. Story courtesy of Al Jazeera.com. Vast forest fires have continued to blaze across the island nation of Cuba, bearing down toward the province of Santiago de Cuba, home to the country's second largest city. On Tuesday, the provincial government announced that a high-intensity fire had been contained near the municipalities of San Luis and Mela, the latter of which saw 250 citizens join efforts in the early morning, well, in the early hours of the morning to stem the flames. Since January, officials in Cuba have counted an estimated 80 wildfires across the country, with firefighters, armed forces, and park rangers struggling to control the burns. More than 2,000 hectares have been consumed across the island, with farms and coffee crops reportedly destroyed in the flames. On Monday, Cuban President Miguel Diaz uh, Diaz Canel took to Twitter to recognize the heroic fight of those battling the blaze, praising the workers on the front lines of Olguin province, where a pine forest region called Pinares de Mayari is on fire. The courage and sacrifice of the firefighters, forest guardians, and residents who face the fires devouring the beautiful and valuable forests of the eastern region in Pinares is great. All right, um, hopefully they're able to get that under control. And this one is so sad as well. A fiery grease train collision kills dozens and injures more than 80. Story courtesy of NPR.org. A head-on collision between a passenger train and a freight train flattened carriages killed at least 36 people and injured some 85. That's according to Greek officials. Before dawn the next day, rescuers searched through twisted, smoking wreckage for survivors. What appeared to be the third carriage lay atop the clumped remains of the first two. Multiple cars derailed and at least three burst into flames after the two trains ran into each other at 
high speed just before midnight on Tuesday, and that happened near the town of Tempe in northern Greece. Many of the approximately 350 people aboard the passenger train were students returning from Greece's raucous carnival, officials said. This year was the first time the three-day festival, which precedes Lent, was celebrated in full since the start of the pandemic in 2020. On Wednesday morning, the government declared three days of national mourning. And our thoughts and prayers do go out to the families of those who have been affected. For a um, quick, yes. quick for some moment. Yes, um, Apple. So, when something wrong, why is it all of a sudden peer train just a derail and a crashing on each other? All of a sudden. Same like for the food processing plants, all the food plants themselves to a burn on left, right, all over up in the US and different countries. No, we have trains just a derail and a crashing at each other. We don't see something wrong. All right. Next story: Nigeria, Africa's most populous nation, elects Bola Tinubu as the new president. Story courtesy of NPR. The main opposition parties are calling for fresh elections. They're describing some of the preliminary results from the country's electoral body as a, quote, sham. The ruling party candidate has so far taken a commanding lead after last weekend's election in Africa's largest democracy. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu is in the capital, Abuja. On Saturday, opposition parties were fiercely competing in a tightly contested election. But on Tuesday, they aligned on the same side. As votes were being counted, giving the ruling parties Bola Ahmed Tinubu a strong lead, they held a joint press conference. This election is not free and far from being fair. And we demand that this sham of an election should be immediately cancelled. The chairman of the Labour Party, Julius Abure, called for a rerun of the vote, alleging that counts in tightly contested areas were manipulated. And as anger built at alleged irregularities, the chairperson of the opposition PDP, Iochia Ayu, called for calm and for the president to intervene, but gave this chilling warning. This is not a credible election and it's not acceptable after 20-something years of our democracy. If nothing is done, we may not be able to control our supporters. Saturday's polls were billed as one of the most important in Nigeria's recent history, and a third-party candidate, Peter Obi, was seen as galvanising more voters to come to the polls. A new electronic voting system was meant to make the vote more credible, and vote tallies would be sent moments after they were counted. But by Tuesday, protesters had started to gather outside the results centre. Chris Ogumodede is an associate editor at World Politics Review. He voted and was part of an observer mission at the polls. These elections were as shambolic as I've ever seen. You know, they were just poorly managed. At some point, the excuses have to cease. You know, how many times must we do this? He said the commission had ultimately let down voters. About three quarters of the results have been announced so far in a vote that will likely be challenged in court. And despite the opposition's protests, the count goes on and a winner is expected to be announced by Wednesday. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Abuja. And now, more from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington. Okay, so that soundbite was courtesy of NPR as it relates to the election outcome in uh, Nigeria. I have a question. 
any election though, and I, I probably didn't pay attention much in my younger years, but um, as I am getting older, you start to focus more and you're realizing more and more that elections are never smooth sailing. Outcomes are never really accepted. I wish I had someone here from Nigeria who was a, who is able to explain to me the the landscape and the um, give me a temperature gauge on what's going on really with the people. I don't want the perspective of a media house because of course we know how media goes. And yes, I do respect NPR because I want to believe that they're one of the most um, fair <laughs> parties out there. But um, I would love to hear from the citizens of Nigeria, those who are there day in, day out, what's really going on. Why is there the feeling that the the elections were not fair? And let us say they were fair. Would the other party, the opposition, be the ones in? Or would the current ones still be the winners? Can I say something? Yes. Welcome, Messer. Am I pronouncing it right, Messerat? Yes, but oh. you can say messy. Messy. Okay, thank you. Welcome <laughs> to uh, Coffee and Toe. It's a pleasure having you. Go right ahead. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm not Nigerian. I'm in Ethiopia, which is a little bit far from Nigeria, <laughs> but in Africa at least. Um, but anyway, like everybody else, I'm, I'm watching the news. And yesterday and even this morning, the radio I was listening to in town was that um, one of the things that the opposition is complaining about is this is the first time they are using electronic voting as well or counting, I think, rather. Um, and that they are saying that there was some malfunctioning and they are blaming that. And um, I think there was some support, that acknowledgement, there was some failures from that um, kind of counting, the electronic counting and things like that. And um, I think that's where they're busy, whether it's fair or not. I have no idea. I'm not from on the ground, but at least that's one of the complaints that I heard. Hmm. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that, Messi. So electronic voting or the counting the ballots electronically is something new. I'm going to take it to Nigeria. Anything that's new, in my opinion, at least, that is um, technologically advanced and it's new to an environment usually comes with some hiccups. Um, there has to be an acclimation period and getting used to. Um, when they were campaigning, were the citizens of Nigeria, were the Nigerians being told all along, say months before, even years before, because I'm sure this is not something that was just sprung upon them or they just pulled out of the clouds. Um, were they being educated on the process, how it works, the plus or minus, the efficiency, how effective it is? Were they privy to that kind of information? Because if they weren't, then of course this can lead to some sort of... Um, mistrust in, in of some of sorts i don't know 
You know, one of the things I think uh, was that I don't I don't think it's the voting that was electronic, but I think Nigeria is what one of the very biggest country in Africa, right? So that 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 the election by in itself, conducting the election by in itself is a logistics nightmare. You know, <laughs> it is. <laughs> you know, especially um, some parts of the countryside where you probably do not have the same infrastructure the cities have and the stuff so everybody should have access to the voting stations and all that and um, in fact I saw one girl who was complaining I think yesterday on CNN that when I saw it she said that they were like in a for hours in some voting places and things like that but then I think that electronics um implementation was to get the results from every kind of voting stations to be um, transmitted and apparently there was some failures in some places not all but some that um, they acknowledged that it happened but they didn't think the commission the election commission didn't think it was a big changing that you need to do an, uh, another election, but at least that's what the opposition was complaining since yesterday. But um, yeah, I, I mean, conducting that is not easy, you know, when you do not have all those great infrastructure all over the country. So even that by in itself, conducting that type of election in such a short time to me is, is you know, one of the big accomplishments that they can do. All right. Thank you so much, Messi. I'm going to play another clip real quick, and, and it's re- it's relating to the um, election. So Nigeria's opposition parties call elections a sham and demand a new vote. But before I do that, I'm just going to quickly read the um, chat. Jili uh, said there was magically more votes than ballots casted in some states, but Nigerians do vote for the candidate from their tribe compared to the most capable candidate. Uh, Hausa is the largest tribe and the Hausa candidate won. Their election was 30% electronic. Everything else was manual. Ink on the fingertip, hand counting and ballots, etc. I know someone opened their mic, but I'm going to go ahead and play the clip real quick and then I'll take your comment. One moment, please. In Nigeria, the main opposition parties are calling for fresh elections. They're describing some of the preliminary results from the country's electoral body as a, quote, sham. The ruling party candidate has so far taken a commanding lead after last weekend's election in Africa's largest democracy. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu is in the capital, Abuja. On Saturday, opposition parties were fiercely competing in a tightly contested election. But on Tuesday, they aligned on the same side. As votes were being counted, giving the ruling parties Bola Ahmed Tinubu a strong lead, they held a joint press conference. This election is not free and far from being fair. And we demand that this sham of an election should be immediately cancelled. The chairman of the Labour Party, Julius Abirea, called for a rerun of the vote, alleging that counts in tightly contested areas were manipulated. And as anger built at alleged irregularities, the chairperson of the opposition PDP, Iyotia Ayu, called for calm and for the president to intervene, but gave this chilling warning. This is not a credible election and it's not acceptable after 20-something years of democracy. If nothing is done... 
Saturday's polls were billed as one of the most important in Nigeria's recent history, and a third-party candidate, Peter Obi, was seen as galvanizing more voters to come to the polls. A new electronic voting system was meant to make the vote more credible, and vote tallies would be sent moments after they were counted. But by Tuesday, protesters had started to gather outside the result centre. Chris Ogumodede is an associate editor at World Politics Review. He voted and was part of an observer mission at the polls. These elections were as shambolic as I've ever seen. You know, they were just poorly managed. At some point, the excuses have to cease. You know, how many times must we do this? He said the commission had ultimately let down voters. About three quarters of the results have been announced so far in a vote that will likely be challenged in court. And despite the opposition's protests, the count goes on and a winner is expected to be announced by Wednesday. Emmanuel Akimwotu, NPR News, Abuja. All right. Thank you so much for your patience. I'm not sure who it was that had opened their mic, but please, James, go yeah, right ahead. The, go ahead, yeah. James. Yeah, well, I was saying, like, people don't realize um, the importance of, you know, the credibility in terms of, like, um, director of elections, like, you know, that um, those groups that are responsible for, or the group that's responsible for the, the election being fair and being transparent and the efficiency of it, because I don't know if you realize that in the past four, five election cycles that the Caribbean, which had um, a poor rate in terms of rating, in terms of election results and questionable elections, you realize that flip and now there's barely any election in the Caribbean where the opposition, like for the most part, they concede within the same night, the same night of the result. There's no like all oh, recounting of ballot on a general scale. And we see like in Europe, we see like in, in Asia and Africa, like these other countries now where it's like election, like every election cycle is questioned now. And I remember, you know, back in the days when um, they appointed the direct, director of election in Jamaica, I can't remember his name, and everybody, like both parties, saw him as someone that is credible and someone that they, they can trust. And since that appointment, like, you know, election night, people that just concede, congratulate each other, and move on to, to doing their work. So, yeah, I think it's, it's very important that, you know, the... The, 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 the governing body for the elections, that they are credible and that no party have them in their pockets and stuff like that. And I think that's what we're seeing now, the lack of credibility. Lack of credibility. All right. So let's see what, um, what else comes up out of this. Will they be able to um, convince the citizens that it was as fair as possible? That's what we can say. Because I remember... Um, was it on Monday or yesterday we read where um, armed people would come up and wreak havoc and steal the ballot boxes and so on and so forth? So that's why I'm saying as fair as possible. All right. All right. In our next story, Congress zeroes in on China as economic and security threats loom. Let me grab that sound bite. Um, this story is also courtesy of npr.org 
Congress enjoys a rare bipartisan moment today when lawmakers come together to address China. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh reports. Wisconsin Republican Mike Gallagher chairs a new House committee created to put a spotlight on the threats posed by China. He says a recent news story made that job a little easier. A Chinese spy balloon drifting over the country and circling our our nuclear ICBM facilities has a way of bringing the threat close to home. Illinois Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy, the top Democrat on the panel, says his constituents already feel the impact of China's influence. Everyone seems to have their own stories, whether they are a small business person or whether they're concerned about the crackdown on dissent or human rights. Both lawmakers want to lay out the economic and national security threats posed by China for the American people. One area they agree on is banning the social media platform TikTok from operating in the U.S. They're concerned the app is taking users' data and its parent company has ties to the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. Gallagher worries about what that means for Americans. It can be used to influence the news, what people see and talk about, and therefore to interfere in our society and our politics and our very democracy. The looming threat from China on America's economy spurred Congress to act last year, passing a bill investing more than $50 billion for U.S. manufacturers to boost semiconductor production. President Biden noted at the summer bill signing that the U.S. went from pioneering the technology to only producing 10 percent of the supply of these critical building blocks of consumer products like cars and cell phones. But he argued now, We are better positioned than any any other nation in the world to win the economic competition of the 21st century. Lawmakers say the use of a surveillance balloon by China only reinforces the need for a comprehensive security plan. The rest of the century will be defined by what happens between the United States and China. That's Florida Senator Marco Rubio, the top Republican on the Senate Intelligence Committee. This is not just a military challenge. China has fused its commercial, military, technological applications in ways no other nation ever has. So um, it's a multifaceted challenge. Part of that challenge is also increased China aggression over Taiwan, an island democracy that governs itself, but that China claims as its territory. The U.S. has its own relationship with Taiwan, deep trade ties, and it supplies weapons to them. Here's Krishnamurthy again. We want to do everything we can to help Taiwan deter or prevent aggression by the CCP. We don't want open hostilities to break out in that part of the world, which could lead to very severe consequences for the region. In terms of domestic policies Congress could zero in on this year, Krishnamurthy says it's important to focus on skills training for U.S. workers to be competitive in fields like robotics and artificial intelligence. He also says the U.S. immigration system penalizes those who come to innovate but are forced to leave because they can't get visas. This is the U.S. shooting itself in the foot repeatedly on immigration, and now it has real-world consequences when adversarial regimes take advantage of our weaknesses, and it comes back to haunt us. For now, both Democrats and Republicans say there's an opportunity to lay the groundwork and come up with new policies on workforce training, immigration, and education that would help the U.S. compete with China. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, Washington. Every day. (laughs) TikTok, China, and the U.S. Access to information. They don't. Let, let me ask a question. 
when will the u.s be in the position where we don't have to import not a damn thing from china when never never we understand the effects the trickle-down effects of industrialization right it, it has contributed to what part of the issues we're having with climate control right so we don't want too much of that on our on our, on our um in our country because we have to protect our citizens make sure they can live as long as possible which is not too long in this country because if something will kill you stress i go kill you but um can we find an amicable way to get along can the countries do that if each party steps away from an authoritarian is that the right one not authoritative which one authoritative or authoritarian approach all of this wouldn't be going on we respect each other that's that's what it boils down to ultimately being able to trust each other knowing you know that nobody's going to try to um jeopardize the other person out of spite but at the basis of this as that as is the foundation of everything is power and greed and this hunger for power and greed or greed and power whichever way you want to put it in the more i have the more i want and the more powerful i feel because i have all that i want I want to be in the position to tell people what to do, when to do, how to think, how to feel, how to act. That, that's pretty much what everybody's going after. Everybody wants to be seen as a superpower of the world, the ones that they must fear and everybody bow down. And as a result of this um, continuous need for power fueled by greed, we will continue to have these stories in the news. And that, that's what it is, ultimately. Well, in my opinion, I stand to be corrected, but that's my opinion. Yeah, but moments. Um, beginning, like, I would say about back to like 40 years ago or so, mm -hmm. China, China and the U.S. are responsible for the power of each other, like for, for both countries getting pretty much out of control because like before before um this one this globalization thing and um it was more diversified where um in in bangladesh like in sri lanka like in other countries mm -hmm. um america was sourcing from other countries but when when it became a thing to to start sourcing almost everything from china because of like what was then slave labor like America started sourcing. There was the option to source from all of these other countries, even the Caribbean. You know, um, Jamaica, for example, um, the, the Levi jeans, like all of those type of stuff, um, a lot of stuff were made in Jamaica before they got taken away and shipped to China. Like a lot of things, like when you look at Bangladesh and from, from the British, you know, controlling the tea industry, in, in, in Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, 
those countries, they were doing other other things mm -hmm. and it was taken away and 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 um brought to China for like for cheap labor, child labor and stuff like that. And then China became like a giant and start outgrowing that and then start pushing back some of those industries to Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, some of those like industry that no longer um, is appealing to, to, to Chinese people because a lot of these people are in technology now and they're becoming millionaires and billionaires. So, yeah, like, they feed each other. The two giants, you know, <laughs> fed each other. So, you know, but here, just continue. Here's the question for me, James. I always wonder about this. You, you, you so oppose another country's policies, right, and the way they conduct business. You, you, you oppose it vehemently. However, your own citizens, whom you have given huge tax tax breaks and i'm talking about in the u.s now we give some people these huge tax breaks to set up corporations and industries and what do they do they go and they set up shop in china how does that work why are we allowing them then to go and set up shop in china why i'm giving you all these tax breaks here in the u.s but still you go and you fund someone else's economy because when you set up shop in china aren't you employing people there yeah, because this thing, this thing that people go around with saying that, oh, like if iPhone was made, wasn't made in China, would pay like a thousand and ten, like ten thousand, five thousand dollars. iPhone could be made in the Philippines. iPhone could be made in India. You know, it's not like right now, like people from India are leading like technology, like in the Caribbean, like the first. Is it me or is it James? James, are you there? Not hearing James. James? This is the this is okay. the country that, um, you know, they don't want to do relation. They don't want to have any relationship with Cuba, and yet still they feed China. When other countries can do what China have been doing for America, other countries can do it too. Hmm. I hope you're hearing me, folks, because I do have the red bar across my screen. Um, thank you, James. Thank you so much. Just like some things I've thought about, you know, when you have downtime and your brain starts wandering, right? But anyway. Okay, so it's time for stories out of North America. Queer baiting, trauma dumping, pink washing. These are some of the new words added to dictionary.com. Story courtesy of CNN via WSVN.com. On this hellscape that we call the Internet, you've probably witnessed a particularly blatant instance of rage farming. Maybe you've rolled your eyes at the pink washing that abounds during Pride Month. Perhaps you felt violated when a Zoom call fail, fell prey to cyber flashing. In a sign of our extremely online times, these terms describing the bleak realities of our digital sphere are among the latest additions to Dictionary.com. The online reference site announced on Tuesday that it has added 330 new entries, 130 new definitions for existing entries, and 1,140 
revised definitions, several of which reflect how the Internet has shaped our experiences and vernacular. It is not surprising to me that this new digital context of our lives is necessitating a new kind of language. And it's interesting that a lot of the new language does give label to more toxic and harmful behaviors. That's according to John Kelly, Senior Director of Editorial at Dictionary.com when speaking with CNN. Rage farming for the uninitiated, like myself, folks, because it's the first time I'm hearing the term rage farming, refers to the tactic of intentionally provoking political opponents, typically by posting inflammatory content on social media in order to elicit angry responses and thus high engagement or widespread exposure for the original poster. Pinkwashing is when individuals or institutions show superficial support for LGBTQ rights as a ploy to divert attention from allegiances and activities that are in fact hostile to such liberties. In other words, talking the talk but not walking the walk. And as you might imagine, cyber flashing is the act of sending unsolicited, sexually explicit visuals online. Such words and phrases are n- and phrases, sorry, are not necessarily new. Indeed, those who spend a lot of time on social media have likely encountered or used them for years, but their inclusion in the dictionary signals that they have reached a certain level of popularity and mainstream usage, Kelly said. Was anyone else aware of these terms? My first time hearing them. Um, well, pinkwashing, you know, I we know about whitewashing. You don't want to whitewash something. But pinkwashing, never heard of that one. Never heard about um, rage farming. Never heard these terms. Interesting. Our vocabulary changes as our um, as we integrate and as we experience new things so to speak all right next up fbi says a man had guns ammo fake marshall id in baggage according to the associated press a man who federal agents say tried to board a plane in new jersey with three guns including a semi-automatic rifle and a fake law enforcement id is in federal custody and facing two charges Soretzi clowden who has a prior weapon related conviction is charged with possession Possession of a firearm by a felon and having a fraudulent ID. That's according to a complaint posted on Monday. The incident occurred as Clowden, 42 of Wallington, New Jersey, tried to board a flight from Newark, New Jersey to Fort Lauderdale, Florida on December 30. That's according to an affidavit by an FBI agent that was filed in federal district court in Newark. Agents screening checked bags, found ammunition and a ballistic vest emblazoned with Deputy Marshal in one of Clowden's bags, according to the affidavit. They retrieved more of his luggage from the plane and found an AR-15 rifle that meets the definition of a machine gun, another rifle, a handgun, a taser, a spring-loaded knife, an expandable baton, a United States Marshal badge, a U.S. Marshal credentials with Clowden's name and photo. All this according to FBI agent Christopher Granato. The FBI agent said the U.S. Marshals Service confirmed that Clowden is not and has never been employed by the agency. 
An attorney listed in court records as representing Cloudon did not immediately respond when emailed for comment. A U.S. magistrate signed an order on Monday placing Cloudon in federal custody and said Cloudon and prosecutors want more time to negotiate a plea agreement. Cloudon was convicted in 2016 in New Jersey of unlawful possession of a weapon, according to Granato. Last year, the Transportation Security Administration seized a record of 6,542 guns at airports around the country most people who are stopped for having a gun at the airport checkpoint say they forgot they had a weapon with them well uh naturalists i'm glad y'all they all kept him up there in new jersey we don't need it in florida we have enough crazies down here in florida but um clearly this is not a case of forgetting but what i want to know is how is it that he had a prior weapon related conviction but yet is able to end up with all of this huh an ar-15 rifle another rifle a handgun a taser spring-loaded knife expandable baton explain that to me how is that possible and this is why i'm saying there needs to be an overhauling of the laws when it comes to gun co- and gun control but as was pointed out last week or the week before um javette made us know exactly how easy it is so here we have another example of the looseness that is going on anybody can get their hands on a gun he has a prior weapon related conviction so why does he have all this artillery for the want of a better term why why Good thing they caught him. God is to tell what he would have done had he made it to Florida, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. But yeah. In our next story out of the U.S., pandemic food assistance, and we brought this up the other day, and it's back in the news again. Pandemic food assistance that held back hunger comes to an end. Story courtesy of NPR.org. Millions of Americans will have less to spend on groceries as emergency food assistance with Congress enacted early in the pandemic has ended. On average, individuals will get about $90 less this month in benefits from the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known as SNAP. Some households will see a cut of $250 a month or more, and that's according to an analysis by the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, a nonpartisan research institute. This is a change that will increase hardship for many individuals and families, especially given the modest amount of regular SNAP benefits, which are only about $6 per person per day on average. About 40 million people in the U.S. are helped out by SNAP. Some states had already phased out the pandemic assistance, and the remaining 32 states, the District of Columbia, Guam, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, issued their last emergency benefits in February. The cut in SNAP benefits comes as food prices continue to rise. Carlos Fares, who is 64 and lives in Columbus, Ohio, calls it a double whammy. It's going to be a lot harder, he says. Social Security is her main source, I should say she, my apologies. Social Security is her main source of income. And while those payments include a cost of living adjustment, it has not kept up with the increase in rent and other expenses. The pandemic boost in SNAP allotments 
helped her eat well and preserve her social security money for other things. Now she'll have to do more with less. Don't worry, folks. Um, you know, we don't care. We have 50 billion that we sent to, 50 billion dollars was sent to Ukraine. So you're going to have to take the back burner, especially you, my elderly. And remember yesterday we spoke about Medicaid. Some states are dropping people from their Medicaid benefits. Um, and I'm reminding you all to stay on top of that. Get in touch with your relatives and friends who rely on Medicaid, especially the elderly. Because the last thing they want to know is that they get a call from their doctor's office. Sorry, you can't come in. You've been dropped. Or they get to the office. Sorry, you've been dropped. We can't see you. And they don't have the money to pay to see their medical professional. All right. So. It's difficult to lose 22% of your income. Or two hundred fifty dollars a month. You say up to two, that. Two hundred fifty dollars a month. Yes, a month per month. In income in this inflationary crisis we're going through now. You know, these people don't don't get a lot of money already. You know what it is to go and lose more money. On top of that, the prices of everything is going up. Oh, Some people barely making it. Hmm. It's hmm. difficult. It is. They don't care because Ukraine needs the money. I'm sorry. I'm still upset about the figure that we read yesterday as it relates to what has been pumped into Ukraine since the war started. And yes, I'm a little antsy because um, Biden was there last week and made an announcement of another package. And then Yellen went there just this week and made an announcement of another package. So yes, I'm a little aggravated that we have it for Ukraine, but we don't have it for the for the 40 million people here who need who need it there are people who are not lazy there are people out there who are working they're going to jobs there are people working and still can't make ends meet and rely on this are grateful for it and we're going to take it away from them how is that fair to them how is that being reasonable I don't care if it was when the Republicans were in or now that the, the Democrats are in. I don't care which party. It is plain evil, in my opinion. Sorry. $250 is a lot. If you want to feed your family healthy, a healthy diet, that can't even do nothing. People are already not making smart choices at grocery stores because they have to consider what will keep my children's tummies full versus what is really healthy for them. And they're going to go with the option of this will keep them full. The diet that is supposed to be inclusive, heavily inclusive of fruits and vegetables can't happen. There are some communities people have to rely on bottled water. Unfortunately, because what's coming through the taps is not clean. So now when you tell people you're going to you're going to lose two hundred and fifty dollars, what exactly are you telling them? While at the same time boasting about the 50 billion dollar um, relief package for for Ukraine. And saying that we are going to fight with them pretty much to the very end. What are you saying to your citizens? whom on the low end of the spectrum, many of whom are low-income earners, they're being taxed, right? Taxes are being taken out of their paycheck. For what then? 
don't understand. Go ahead, James. Yes, yeah, so, so moment, sir. There, there's an interesting development that I, I need you to follow. Like, you're going to find it funny. Oh, Lord. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's happening here, and I'm, I'm sure it's happening in the U.S. too, but it, it's, it's not hitting, like, major network yet. Talk about but, it. But apparently, no, like, a lot of, I know in Toronto, a lot of Ukrainians are returning to, to Ukraine. And I was listening to an interview. <laughs> I think I know where this is going, but God, go ahead. No, I was listening to an interview yesterday, and there's a, a, a Ukrainian guy that set up an organization to help um, the Ukrainians that, that are in Toronto. Um, and a lot of the Ukrainians know they are complaining, which I don't want to judge, and, but, but it's kind of new to me. Like, I've never heard any type of refugee complain before. Like what I was hearing on the, on, on, on the interview. So what, what, what they were complaining about now is that they came to Toronto, the government is giving 3,500 Canadian dollars per adult, 1,005 something per child. <laughs> um, and they put you up in a hotel and then, you know, like local groups can, Ukrainian groups can mobilize and help them to find apartments and stuff like that. And remember, I said three thousand five, <laughs> one thousand five or one thousand six per child. That's over five thousand already. Mm -hmm. Fifty-one hundred. Yes. So, like, if it's a, a, you know, two adults. Hold on, but hold on, hold on, hold on. Slow down. Let me draw for my calculator because me need to make sure the maths is right on this one. So, yeah. In a typical, hold on, the James. Hold on, the don't leave me. Don't leave me. So you said three thousand five hundred per adult. Per adult. Plus 1,600 1, per child. Per child. Okay. Yeah. So let us say I'm a single parent with one child. That's 5,100 Canadian. Yeah. If it's a family of four where there are two adults and two children, we're talking about 10,200 Canadian dollars. Yep. Plus I'm put up in a hotel. Yeah. And for, I want for my Ukrainian citizenship. Yeah. For a limited time until you can find a... a, a, a place to rent and that money still comes to you every month i don't know how long they're doing it for but that money still come to you until you're settled so so this group now what i found interesting is that um from the group that they were doing the interview a lot of them said you know what we're going back home uh -huh. because pretty much they're saying this is monkey money it can't we can't survive huh? in living in toronto because rent is expensive and we're rather to go back home. How much is rent and in Toronto, James, on average, at the low end? Well, I'm, well just put it this way. I'm not making $5,000 a month. <laughs> <laughs> so I found, I found that a bit interesting. And I know, I, know, I know a lot of refugees. I know refugees from um, uh, like African refugees. I know people from Haiti mm -hmm. that, that are not even getting 3005 and they're happy. Lick me but not kill me them say. Yeah, they're happy being in, 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 in Canada. Like I know <laughs> I know quite a few people from Zimbabwe that they wish they could get like three thousand five per person. The entitlement, James. Yeah, so I found that interesting when I was listening to the interview yesterday. So I <laughs> but, but hold on there, James. Hold on there. When the war start last year, right? So let us say they've been there for minimum six months, okay? But let me go back to my calculator because um hold on, so my calculator right here. So let me go back to that. Oh sorry to a moment. One of the one of the things that one of the the person in the interview said, like 
this guy was saying that um they're trying to open business and it's like jumping through like fire to open a business i'm like really, who is trying to open like a business the um the okay. refugee people okay. that just came refugee they want to open business so i'm like that sound like okay right so thank you james because here's the thing and this, this would make a whole lot of sense and this takes me back to a couple weeks ago you remember when i made the comment in here and i said marlon said this that don't be surprised the the, the ukrainians are laughing at us over here right all right so if i am being put up in a hotel and let's say for six months i'm getting um this money family of four just leave because we're just going to work with a family of four sixty thousand dollars in six months right if you want the exact figure sixty one thousand two hundred in six months so let us say we're going to take out about um let's take out mm, for food it's and stuff to take out no but, oh, but hold on them get food no 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 i'm talking about them have to spend money for food and you know little incidentals so let us they say they probably got a stipend for they that probably too. get a stipend for that too all right so i'm gonna say let us say fifty thousand dollars would i pack up and go back home too i would go home too james so they are laughing at us they are laughing at us and marlon is right they are laughing at us them going go back home now with that fifty thousand dollars and i'm i'm sure it's way more than that and they're gonna go back and carry on their life while we are losing 250 dollars a month our poor our low income our elderly losing that every month yeah moments and then there there was a few months ago today there was a group of protests like from like african caribbean people protesting and people you know people thought it was insensitive because like this group now start having a flashback and say wait a minute like this this never happened for haiti like you know this never happened for haiti and then people were protesting and saying look we come and we clean um your 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 parents bum we do this we 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 take your grandfather your grandmother to the hospital we can't get citizenship we can't get nothing but no three thousand five per per person no, and, James, and tell me it's $250. Please tell me it's $250 and not no, 3500 And people thought it was insensitive, but I'm like, okay, when do we bring this up? Like, we didn't see this effort. If, if we had seen like 10% of this effort for Haiti, we wouldn't be complaining. But nothing like this for Haiti. And, and you know, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> I don't know if I'm to laugh or I'm to cry. Go, right Go ahead, Donnell we are complaining that the people find five thousand dollars six thousand dollars a month is not enough and not they want we want to go back then, to ukraine then, then. with the amount of billions of dollars that is flowing into ukraine they probably have information that you they are know, better off right. in ukraine you're right you know Donald. there's billions fly, flying in there every day and the corruption is the highest is of the highest level because they like to talk about nigeria corrupt Ukraine oh, is one of the most corrupted countries oh, in the world. A lot of this money is disappearing. So why are we surprised if these people say $5,000 is chicken feed? <laughs> they could go back to Ukraine and they probably would start business and become millionaires. Where do so I sign up? do they have to take five dollars and $6,000? Donald, I just want to know where do I sign up to become a Ukrainian? Please and thank you. 
Are you working on it? Don't worry, I'm going to send the information. <laughs> I'm done. I don't want to be Jamaican. I don't want to be American. I don't want to be anything but Ukrainian. It's gonna work out for me. And when we're gonna and get the bag of money, me come back and get the rest out because it that's happening for us around here. Remember, while you're at it, you have to bleach too. <laughs> no worry about that. Me have coal, me have enough coal gate toothpaste. Me can't start now. I'm gonna buy one wig. Doctor Miami down the road, me just go with proper surgery. I make him straighten the nose, remove piece at the bottom, and I'll be there. Just... Mm -mm. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Marlon called it a couple weeks ago, or a month ago, whatever. I remember saying it in here. He called it. They're laughing at us. And Donald, you're right. $5,000 is chicken feed because they must have information over there. And yes, corruption is rampant in Ukraine. And and even if you go back to Haiti, look at, when you go on the trending thing that was on um, Facebook back in the days, look at the, the color of the people that were saying, Haiti, we stand with you. Look at it. <laughs> look, at what, look, at, look, look what's happening now. Like it, it because... You know, like, sometimes I sit down and I'm saying, you know, like, James, this is a humanitarian crisis. You know, I kind of feel bad questioning things. But then I'm looking back at Haiti and I'm like, I see, like, dead bodies in the street. And, you know, Montreal, Montreal, there's a, there, there, there are a lot of um, people from Haiti in Montreal who would willingly, like, take family members and stuff like that. And the governments, we weren't, we, we, we like, in hours we saw like 10 20 plane load of people flying from we across the world haiti is just next door to canada it's not it's not a long flight and all the, the billions of dollars that we we we, we saw like fundraising and then after a couple of years you hear that that money didn't didn't make it to haiti like it's, it's disgusting <laughs> you know what uh... Let me keep it moving because I don't. More states appear poised to expand voting access for people who were incarcerated. Story courtesy of NPR.org. State lawmakers across the country appear poised this year to continue a trend of revisiting rules for granting voting rights to people who were convicted of a felony. In Minnesota, where Democrats last year gained full control of state government, more than 50,000 people were previously convicted of a felony are expected to immediately regain voting access following legislation that was recently sent to Governor Tim Waltz's desk. The law would restore voting rights after someone is no longer in custody. Currently, former inmates need to complete all parts of their sentence, including parole and probation, before getting back access to the ballot. This is just one of many state-level efforts in the U.S. to expand voting access to people with prior convictions. A man charged with killing three officers was found dead in his jail cell, story courtesy of NPR.org. A Kentucky man charged in the deaths of three law enforcement officers during an ambush in a small Appalachian town has been found dead in his jail cell. Lance Stortz, 50, was found dead of an apparent suicide Tuesday morning at the Pike County Detention Center where he was being held on three murder charges. That's according to Floyd County Sheriff John Hunt when speaking on Tuesday. The sheriff's office said Stortz opened fire on officers 
with a high-powered rifle, and this happened on June 30, when they arrived at his home to serve a protective order. Hunt described the scene as a war zone during an hours-long standoff before Stortz surrendered. The shooting was one of the deadliest for law enforcement officers in Kentucky's history. Officials said it was the most law enforcement deaths in a single incident since a 1923 prison riot left three officers dead. Hunt said police in Pike County are investigating Storrs' cause of death. Conservative and liberals split at Supreme Court over Biden's student loan plan. At the Supreme Court today, an effort led by a handful of Republican-dominated states seemed on the verge of invalidating President Biden's federal student loan forgiveness plan. As NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports, a majority of the court's conservatives indicated great skepticism about the plan. In 2003, after the 9-11 attack, Congress passed a law to ensure that federal student loan borrowers would not be economically hammered in a national emergency. Specifically, the law says that when the president declares such an emergency, the Secretary of Education has the power to, quote, waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision governing federal student loans. During the pandemic, both the Trump and Biden administrations invoked the law to pause student debt payments without penalties. Then last year, President Biden, pressed by some progressives in his own party, went further to provide up to $20,000 in debt relief for borrowers with limited earnings. Although estimates of the plan's cost have ranged from $300 to $430 billion, Today in the Supreme Court, Chief Justice Roberts went high. We're talking about a half trillion dollars in debt and 43 million borrowers, he said. How does that mean modify? If you're talking about this in the abstract, I think most casual observers would say if you're going to give up that much amount of money, if you're going to affect the obligations of that many Americans on a subject that's of great controversy, they would think that's something for Congress to act on. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelager replied that Congress had acted when it passed the 2003 law creating special provisions for student loan forgiveness during a declared national emergency. Justice Kavanaugh. Some of the biggest mistakes in the court's history were deferring to uh, assertions of executive emergency power. Some of the finest moments in the court's history were uh, pushing back against presidential assertions of emergency power, and that's continued... Prelager replied that the secretary in this case made the necessary finding to justify the loan relief. Without this critical relief for debtors, we are going to have a wave of default across the country with all of the negative consequences that has for borrowers. I think it is precisely the type of context where the executive should be able to implement those emergency powers. Conservative Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, and Barrett countered that the power to waive and modify the terms of federal student loans is not the same thing as wiping all or part of a loan off the books. And Gorsuch pointed to the people who have paid off their loans. What about them, he asked. But the court's three liberals had a very different view. Justice Kagan, for instance, said that Congress had deliberately written an expansive law. We deal with congressional statutes every day that are really confusing. This one is not. The biggest sticking point of the day, though, was whether the six state objectors have legal standing to challenge the student loan forgiveness plan at all. If they can't show that they've suffered a concrete harm, they have no right to sue. 
Today, they hung their argument on the claim that if lots of loans are discharged, the Biden plan could end up depriving the state of Missouri of revenue from the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, known as MOHILA. Mohila is an independent corporation set up by the state that services student debt, but it explicitly did not join this lawsuit, a fact that both liberal and conservative justices pounced on. Justice Kagan. Usually we don't allow one person to step into another's shoes and say, I think that that person suffered a harm, even if the harm is very great. Conservative Justice Barrett was even more pointed. If Mohila is an arm of the state, why didn't you just strong arm Mohila and say you've got to pursue this suit? Nebraska Solicitor General James Campbell, representing all six GOP states, replied this way. Your Honor, that's a question of state politics, but we believe as a matter of law that the state has the authority to assert its interest. So what was the bottom line today? Unless the court decides that the states have no standing to sue and throws the case out of court, the Biden Student Loan Forgiveness Program will likely be struck down. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. And a decision in the case is expected by Somo. This has been going back and forth how long now? How long ago did this start? This back and forth as it relates to the student loan. Isn't it ironic? Justices with the most questionable nominations are the ones that are against this. <laughs> check, check the history. Mm-hmm. Follow the money trail. Mm-hmm. Oh, folks, don't hold your breath. We were riled up. We were hopeful. We were expecting. We were like, yes. Hot air balloon quickly deflated. Mexico approves new Tesla plant in northern Mexico, and that means it is time for business and tech news. All right, first up, Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador announced the decision on Tuesday following a call with Elon Musk. Story courtesy of AlJazeera.com, Mexican President Andres has announced that the electric car manufacturer Tesla will open a large plant in northern Mexico, marking an investment that could be worth up to $10 billion for the region. Following a phone call with Tesla chief executive Elon Musk on Tuesday, Lopez Obrador revealed that the plant would be located in the industrial hub of Monterrey, the capital of the northeast state of Nuevo León. This will represent a considerable investment and many, many jobs, he told reporters, adding that Musk had been very receptive towards concerns about issues like water use in the parched region. Mexico has pitched itself as an alternative to Asia for U.S.-based companies looking to establish manufacturing operations, citing proximity as an advantage. Tuesday's decision, which has yet to be confirmed by Tesla, would represent a significant boost to those efforts. Mexico is already home to one of the largest car manufacturing sectors in Latin America, only second to Brazil. 
or second only to Brazil, I should say, hosting plants for U.S., European, and Asian car companies. The last year brought more foreign investment into the country than at any point in the last several years. The German manufacturer BMW announced earlier this year that it would invest about $870 million to make electric cars in the Mexican state of San Luis Potosi. And in a meeting with U.S. and Mexican business executives in July 2022, Lopez Obrador boasted that U.S. companies planned to invest $40 billion through 2024. Uh, BMW, that $870 million, take it and fix on a care because on a care them is not the best. Anyway, let me keep it moving on that one. Um, yeah, so here again is another example. Why question, why are we giving, say, Tesla tax breaks in the U.S. if they, the the manufacturing is going to be done in other countries i don't get it i don't understand the economics of it uh, and i'll be honest i don't get it i would feel that if i'm giving a company huge tax breaks they should set up shop in said country they're getting the tax breaks from so that the country's citizens can get jobs and so you know trickle down effect snowball effect domino effect any effect you want to call it that's that's how i look at it but I'm not an economist. I don't understand um, the geofinances. I'll be honest. Yes, funny because yes, funny because that used to be an election, a hot topic election debate, like <laughs> two or three election cycles ago, mm-hmm. and you realize that that don't even come up in elections anymore <laughs> because it's not realistic. <laughs> it, don't, it don't come up in elections anymore. But I, I, I don't know. But but Tesla, I don't know. Like I feel like Tesla, because because Musk is not seen as someone that trustworthy. So I don't know how <laughs> you know. And, and when you look at all the other the because I, I've I've been looking at some other electronic um, vehicle the other day, and most of them that I see look better than the Tesla. You know, in terms of you know shape and and looks and everything, they look way better. So I feel like all of these other cars are going to start giving. Tesla a run and I don't know how long you know their dominance is going to really last in the marketplace let's see let's see all right next up u.s government to chip makers share profits if you want subsidies a story uh courtesy of aljazeera.com united states president joe biden's administration has said it will require companies winning funds from its 52 billion dollar semiconductor manufacturing and research program to share excess profits and explain how they plan to provide employees with affordable childcare. Well, I'll be darned. The U.S. Commerce Department on Tuesday released plans to begin accepting applications in late June for a $39 billion manufacturing subsidy program. The funding is in part or is part of the Chips and Science Act, which President Joe Biden signed into law last August. The law also creates a 25% investment tax credit for building chip plants, estimated to be worth $24 billion. The CHIPS Act plays a central role in the Biden administration's effort to bring semiconductor manufacturing back to the U.S. Its success is vital to U.S. ambitions to keep ahead of China in global markets. Semiconductor companies have announced that more than four. 
40 new projects are including nearly $200 billion in private investments to increase domestic production since the law's introduction in August. So I'm glad to see that they are holding them accountable for something. Explain how they plan to provide employees with affordable childcare. How about the companies pay for the damn childcare? Some companies can afford to do that. And I think this should be something that is um, required if it is not already in place. It should be required by every single company that gets these huge tax breaks. My opinion. You can't keep getting these tax breaks and you get and you get and you get and you're not giving. Employees are still struggling. That no make no sense. So I like this. Yeah. You want the money? Share your excess profits and explain how you're going to provide employees with affordable childcare. Have you seen the, the cost of childcare? It's ridiculous. For two parent households, it makes sense if you have um, so many children under um, elementary school age that one of you stay home. Because all you're doing, can you imagine having two or three children under the age of six? And you have to pay daycare for that, for them. All you're doing is going to work and handing over your check to the daycare center, which makes no sense to me. So you might as well stay home and, you know, figure it out until them get to six years old and you can send them to school and then you go out and work. That's my recommendation. And I think that way we have a better control over our children and what happens to them and what they're exposed to at an early age. My thoughts, just thinking out loud. I don't know. But I like that. <laughs> yeah, politics again. You have to vote for the right people. <laughs> politics. Because no, in, in, in Montreal, they, Montreal had like a, a flat um, child care rate for like decades now. Really? And Yeah, and people, people move there just for that. That's amazing. Um, they're trying to do it across the country now, but um, I think I heard, even before I moved to Canada, I heard like uh, Montreal... They threaten that they're going to break away and become their own country. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in order for that not to happen, it, it, it's almost like they stick up the, the federal government and say, okay, give us a certain amount of money and then we'll stay. We'll be Canada. Mm -hmm. And they got extra money and they put it towards childcare. So a good thing. All right. That's good. All right. So let me see if I can quickly get through the health and science news. First up, a study I'm done shows that LGBTQ plus youth are less likely to feel depressed with parental support. Story courtesy of NPR. Young people who identify as LGBTQ plus were less likely to report symptoms of depression when they had the general support from their parents. And this is according to a study that was published on Tuesday. Previous research has examined parental support directly tied to a person's LGBTQ plus identity. But the study, which was published by the University of Texas at Austin, uh, researchers in the Child Development Journal asked LGBTQ plus youth to answer how often their parents did things like say how proud they were of them or assisted them with activities. And I will say this, I think this stands for any of us as um, as people. How many of us have not pursued certain things because we did not get the support we were looking for from our parents? How many of us have um, shortchanged ourselves because those whom we look up to, those whom we're closest to, don't give us the support we're looking for. 
I think it happens to everyone, not just the LGBTQ community, but it happens to every single one of us. Just pay attention to children who are given full support, whether it's in sports, academics, skill sets, trade, whatever. The outcome is better for them than those who don't get the support or their choices are always questioned. So why you have to like that? Why can't you do that? And especially if you compare your children to other people's children or even amongst them, if you have more than one, you know, and I know it's a part of Caribbean culture. So, um, so Javet daughter graduated, she had big, big doctor. What happened to you? Why you can't turn doctor too? We tend to do that. Compare. And that makes us feel less than the psychological damage that we do to our children. Right? We have to be careful with that. So it's, it, it, I think it, the study can be applicable to anybody. As long as you are being supported, the likelihood of depression setting in is minimized. Next up, three abortion bans in Texas leave doctors talking in code to patients. Wow. This past fall, the Lauren Miller, when Lauren Miller of Dallas was 13 weeks pregnant with twins, she got horrible news. One of the twins had trisomy 18, a genetic abnormality that causes about 90% of fetuses to die before birth. The other twin was healthy. She learned from a genetic counselor that continuing to carry both fetuses could put the healthy one at risk. She saw a doctor who specializes in high-risk pregnancies who told her, you can't do anything in Texas and I can't tell you anything further in Texas, but you need to get out of state. And that's exactly what she did. Miller traveled to Colorado and at 15 weeks pregnant, she had a selective reduction procedure to help ensure her pregnancy with her healthy twin could continue. When she returned to Dallas and continued her prenatal care, she found herself navigating silence around abortion. She wondered if the ultrasound technician knew she'd traveled out of state for an abortion. Could she get reported? You don't know where anybody stands. So it feels like we're all kind of talking in code, Miller says. What Miller does not, what Miller did does not violate current abortion laws in Texas, legal experts say. But the fare among doctors and patients in the new legal landscape in Texas is extreme to the point where, as Miller found, some doctors will not even say the word abortion in the exam room. Thank you, um, Supreme Court, for the reversal of Roe versus Wade. We appreciate you much for that. What I find interesting with this story is, is because the laws are so one-sided or some doctors don't even really know the entire law, they have to speak in code. But you have to think that our medical procedures and the things that we do are supposed to be private anyway. Mm -hmm. So why would the doctor have to speak in code? Because other people are taking it upon themselves to be the moral police. Mm -hmm. And they need to drink some water and mind their own business. Exactly. I yield. Thank you, Javette. Rosolo, you opened your mic? Or was I seeing doubles? 
must have been seeing that was anything is possible. Yeah. People don't know how to mind their business, Annette. I mean, Javette, and that's a huge problem. And you can't blame the doctors for moving that way. You spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to school. You have to keep your license current. It's costly. And some love, some absolutely love what they do, and they're not going to risk it. You cannot blame them. All right, real quick, let me see if I can breeze through. Or you know what? No, I don't want to rush this one. Um, I want to talk about this tomorrow. Since we're talking about, um, we're celebrating Women's History Month, I want us to discuss this one tomorrow. It is the perfect storm, keeping women of color behind at work. And this article is courtesy of BBC com and it falls under equality matters so we're going to talk about that tomorrow when we come back for coffee until yeah time time always goes so quickly um yeah i don't know why it always has to run away with us james real quick you have 30 seconds okay james can't do it in 30 seconds so he's gonna say I, I don't do anything in 30 seconds. You know what? Goodbye, James. <laughs> and how unfortunate that this is the song I have to play right after that comment. James, James, James. Big thank you to everyone that logged on to the Quality Music Zone, QMZRadio.com and JohnNoRadio.com. Also, a huge thank you to everyone here with me on Clubhouse. This is where the conversation happens. I'm Moments with me, and you are listening to Coffee Intel World News on the Go. We do this every Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern. It is where I read the news and we share our views. Always great conversation, shared views, varying opinions, and interesting perspectives. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at me Media Moments on Instagram, Moments underscore with underscore me underscore media, and on TikTok, Moments with me media and the mean everything is mi whatever you do folks and wherever you go i do ask you this one favor please be safe thank you to my listeners online this is moments with me signing out